I think I found the uh, smoking gun here. Uh, there was a uh, recent scientific study uh, published in Antiviral Research, 10 February 2020, by three scientists from France and one from Montreal, who did a uh, genetic analysis of the uh, Wuhan coronavirus, and they said, quote, it may provide a gain of function of the 219 coronavirus for efficient spreading in the human population compared to other viruses. Let me repeat that. May provide a gain of function to the 2019 coronavirus for efficient spreading in the human population compared to other uh, lineage coronaviruses. Gate, what that, that's uh, the smoking gun for a uh, biologic, offensive biological warfare uh, agent. Gain of function uh, properties uh, is uh, a tip off. It's only useful for uh, offensive biological warfare uh, uh, activity. Uh, and it is typically conducted in either a, uh, it's so dangerous, in either a BSL 4 or a BSL 3 facility. And there in Wuhan, you have the only uh, BSL 4 facility in uh, China. So I, I think it's clear uh, it, it came out of uh, this lab. Gain of function, uh, it uh, means it's DNA genetically engineered uh, to be more lethal and more, uh, effect, uh, uh, more infectious. Clearly what, what we're seeing now with uh, this uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, it, it is basically SARS which is already a weaponized version of, uh, of a coronavirus that has leaked out of that laboratory at least twice before. And then it is given gain of function properties, uh, which basically means it can travel by air for at least uh, six feet and uh, is, is more lethal. SARS lethality was about 10%. Lancet estimates here the lethality is about 15%. If you, uh, uh, disaggregate Chinese government uh, figures, it's about 17%. And there's a British health, public health authority who said he thinks it's about 18%. So I think that's uh, a fair and accurate statement. Second, uh, we have uh, an article here from uh, the uh, <clears throat> NatMed, 15, uh, 2015, December 21. Uh, SARS-like cluster of circulating back coronases show potential for human emergence. This was at the uh, University of North Carolina uh, they in Chapel Hill. They have a biosafety lab uh, level three there, and I previously condemned them uh, for using gain-of-function uh, work uh, uh, on MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome 
Uh, it is like SARS, only more dangerous. It has uh, a 33% lethality rate. And they were doing gain of function work there to, to make it even more lethal. Well, it turns out if you read the, uh, the article, they admit that they were doing this with, uh, with SARS, that they were giving it a gain of function activity. And it turns out part of their team was a, uh, a researcher from China, Zheng Li, Li Shi, key laboratory of special pathogens and biosafety, Wuhan Institute of Virology, Chinese Academy of Sciences. And they gave a grant uh, to the University of North Carolina to get their uh, uh, scientists in on this extremely dangerous Nazi-type biological warfare work. So it appears that what happened was, uh, instead of stealing this technology, uh, China bought it. And they bought it from the uh, lab there at the uh, University of North Carolina. They put their person in there. They took the technology and they brought it back to the Wuhan lab. It's right there. This fellow works for the Wuhan lab. Um, and it also appears that uh, the uh, North Carolina lab uh, got uh, cells from Fort Detrick, which is the U.S. Uh, major facility for the research, development, testing, stockpiling of biological weapons. Fort Detrick is the U.S. equivalent of Port and Down. So that's where they got some of their cells here. And they made it clear uh, the work that they were doing was to increase the pathogenicity of original SARS by giving it this gain of function uh, activity. The final uh, piece of uh, evidence here is uh, uh, Archive of uh, Virology uh, 2010. Uh, and this is uh, research done with the Australian Animal Health Laboratory. And again, the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they DNA genetically engineered SARS and HIV, okay, to, to make a weapon. And uh, they got a grant here from the Chinese uh, Ministry of Science, Technology, et cetera, to do this. So once again, they, they brought the, bought the technology. They didn't steal it uh, back to uh, Wuhan. And so my reading of these articles, basically, these uh, three articles, is that they took the technology from this death factory at North Carolina. They took the technology from this uh, Australian uh, uh, research project they brought it back to uh, the Wuhan BSL-4 and tried to genetically engineer it all together as a sort of a turbocharged biological warfare weapon that would, would consist with, of SARS, which is already a uh, weaponized coronavirus, uh, gain of function uh, properties, and HIV. And as you know, uh, those Indian scientists already did an analysis of the coronavirus uh, and, and it was published online, I read it. And HIV was clearly uh, in there, AIDS, that, that gives AIDS, I saw the pictures. So that I think is what uh, we are dealing with here. Uh, a, a, we've never seen, uh, at least released in the public, 
a biological warfare agent this dangerous, except the uh, Amerithrax uh, that was uh, in October 2001 after the 9-11-2001 terrorist attacks. Uh, that was super weapons grade uh, anthrax, uh, 100 grams of spore. Uh, it too traveled in the air. Uh, it, it, it seemed to be based on uh, nanotechnology uh, and we hadn't seen any. And at the time I publicly stated it came out of US biological warfare weapons program and probably Fort Detrick, which was later uh, confirmed. I said that about the uh, first week in November, even I was even on the BBC saying that. And then an order was given to silence me. Uh, I was blackballed off all uh, mainstream news media in the United States, uh, Britain, Europe, you name it. So uh, despite the fact my viewpoints are all over the world, no mainstream news media will touch me. So um, the Amerithrax, of course, was extremely dangerous, but not as infectious as what we're seeing here. So in a nutshell, that's where I see it as of today. Sorry about the delay there, folks. Was just uh, checking on the tech here. And while I'm doing the intro to the bio sci war and uh, the series today and self-fulfilling catastrophe, it's sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy that we're seeing unfold here with a lot of this uh, logic that we've been unfolding in the bio sci war. And uh, I'm going to be sidetracked so far in the show. We've had nothing but success. Well, you could you could argue that with some of the things that YouTube's done to us in the show. Um, but today I noticed uh, some issues with the connection and I think I might have fixed it live right before we got started. But now I'm kind of checking that and that's what happens when you do it live. You get stuck in these situations where the train is going full speed and you might not be fully prepared to uh, keep shoving coal into the engine. You might need to go back and tighten a couple bolts before the full thing uh, gets going. So that's what I'm doing right now as I fiddle around here. Again, welcome to the BioSci War. Uh, this is the TylerBloyer.com live streaming show. Today is March 27th, uh, 2021. We are on about episode 8 of this series at this point. And if you include a few preliminary episodes that we did before that, uh, you could say that we're on episode 10 or so. And so in the series, if you want to go back through and uh, check out any of the previous episodes the easiest way to get there would be just to jump over to tylerblair.com and uh, scroll down a bit you'll see the latest posts and uh, if you refresh this you'll be able to see today's post here and then the category itself you click on the big picture or the little category there and you'll get the whole series and that's why i said there was two uh, preliminary episodes we did the cyber pentagon and total psyop apocalypse or sorry, total psyop awareness. I guess things are looking all right, and uh, I can check on these settings in the next break as far as uh, trying to split my attention among these two things. Now, what we saw there in the beginning was Professor Francis Boyle. Another interview that I'd recommend to go check out of his is uh, Jack Spearco. You can find this on YouTube at the moment, probably not too long at this link. 
but then among the various other places like BitChute and Library. And then there's other interviews that Alex Jones has done with him that were pretty groundbreaking as well. We've aired some of those in the bio, or sorry, in the Grand Theft world. If we want to read a little bit about, about Francis Boyle to get a background on him, you can see the Info Galactic article here. Francis Anthony Boyle, born 1950, is a professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. He received an A.B. in political science from University of Chicago, then a J.D. degree, magna cum laude, from Harvard Law School, and A.M. and Ph.D. degrees in political science from Harvard University. He practiced tax and international tax with Bingham, Dana, and Gold. Boyle served as a counsel to Bosnia and Herzegovina and to a provincial government of the Palestinian Authority. He also represents two associations of citizens with Bosnia and was involved in developing the indictment against Slobodan Milosevic for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Over his career, he has represented national and international bodies, including Blackfoot Nation in Canada, the Nation of Hawaii, and the Lakota Nation, as well as numerous individual death penalty and human rights cases. He has advised numerous international bodies in the areas of human rights, war crimes and genocide, nuclear policy, and biowarfare. From 1991 to 92, Boyle served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian delegation of the Middle East peace negotiations. He served on the board of directors of Amnesty International as a consultant of the American Friends Service Committee and on the advisory board for the Council for Representative and on the advisory board starting over for the Council of Responsible Genetics. He drafted the U.S. Domestic implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention, known as the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, that was approved unanimously by both houses of the U.S. Congress and signed into law by President George Herbert Walker Bush, George H.W. Now, so that's a little bit of background there on Boyle, and as you can see, that he's not just uh, some guy with a bunch of research papers stacked behind him, you know, this is uh, someday what I aspire to, to be. We're, we're, start, we're starting a short collection here. Maybe we can keep it a little bit more organized, but I'm just kidding about that. I don't mean to make light of this man's serious and profound level of uh, knowledge about what he was discussing there in the beginning. And so we opened up with Francis Boyle. Uh, we're going to cruise right into some things today, uh, including this next quote from Gene Wars, Military Control over the new genetic technologies from Charles Pilar and Keith R. Yamamoto. And the reason why we're going to jump to this book again, and we've jumped to it three or four times in the BioSci War, is there's a quote uh, from Boyle that we'll read up to and uh, get to here in a moment. And we'll read from page 166 through 169 in Gene Wars. A book from 1988. Uh, again, we've read from this book a few times, and I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. But let's go ahead and read uh, from what page 166 the question 
uh, sorry, the section, a question of tactics. Those in the chat can let me know how things sound. Last week we had a buzzing. I seem to have addressed that this week. Um, hopefully that's true. And hopefully it's not as choppy as it looks in the view I'm doing here. So it does look a little choppy. So I'm going to take a sec here before we start reading. Again, this is Gene Wars. I'll just let you take a, back, a look at the back cover uh, while I go ahead and try to take a look at this live. Because I know, I think, what I need to do to fix this problem. Okay, so there's that. It could just be that the one of the alphabet agencies is messing with the stream today. No, I'm just kidding. There does seem to be a configuration change in what's gone on in the previous weeks, or there could just be a load on my internet. All right. Well, we'll uh, hope that uh, the live stream looks all right. It seems to be fine on my phone, so it could just be that we need to close that. And sorry about the delay here, folks. You got to love the one man studio doing it live, changing Internet connections on the fly. That really should do it, what I've got set up. So I just wanted to make sure that was true. And we'll read on. Now, Francis Boyle, he makes an appearance in this book. So we're going to go ahead and read a section from this book. And take off all this stuff with me. In 1980, the first Biological Weapons Convention Review Conference was held. The, conferen uh, the conferees affirmed that the treaty, quote, has provide, provided sufficient comprehensive... Okay, so let me start over. Hold on, sorry. Uh, in 1980, the Biological Weapons Convention Review Conference was held. The conferees affirmed that the treaty, quote, had proved sufficiently comprehensive to have covered recent scientific and technological developments, unquote. Further, they said new agents developed using our DNA that would be, quote, unlikely to improve upon known agents to the extent of providing compelling advantages for illegal production of military use in foreseeable futures, unquote. In essence, this view holds that changes in biological weapons technology have been quantitative rather than qualitative. Therefore, fundamental changes in existing sanctions are unnecessary. But the accelerating pace of biotechnology continued to generate fears in and out of government that the treaty regimes was deterring and that it Sorry, starting over. I just had a distraction here. Uh, but the accelerating pace of biotechnology continued to generate fears in and out of government, and the treaties and the treaty regime uh, was deteriorating, and that the prospect of biological warfare was on the rise. Manfred Hem, an analyst for the Heritage Foundation of conservative, a conservative think tank, echoed the views of many in the Reagan administration when he said the treaty, quote, amounts to little more than an expression of universal aspiration, unquote. Non-governmental scientists and arms control experts generally agree 
that even if new biotechnologies are fully exploited, it would be extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to create truly controllable bioweapons agents. And they remain skeptical about the utility of weapons that are unpredictably unpredictable or only moderately predictable in their spread and, and efficacy. But this same community of experts is divided about the impact of biotechnologies on the, on the treaty regime and about how to interpret these questions for both political institutions and the general public. One position is closely aligned with the Pugwash movement, an influential private arms control research advisory group Pugwash was derived from the name of the Cleveland financier's Cyrus Eaton's summer home in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, where Eaton sponsored, quote, unofficial meetings of Soviet and U.S. arms control experts of the 1950s. Pugwash counts among its members many leading figures in the CBW arms control, including Julian Perry Robinson of the University of Suex, England, Jorma Metinin, director of Finland's project for the chemical disarmament, Robert Mikulak of the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, Harvard's Matthew Maselison, who is credited with strongly influencing President Nixon to renounce biological weapons, and several Soviet scientists. Pugwash endorses the 1980s review conference stance, fears about the effects of genetic engineering on biological weapons developments and treaty are, quote, largely misplaced, unquote. The group believes, quote, since the potentials for misuse of that technology appear to be no greater than the standard microbiological techniques which have existed since the inception of 1972 convention, unquote. Without ignoring the reality of international concerns about genetic engineering, Pugwash sees confidence building and enhanced openness and communications between nations as the way to keep the lid on the biological weapons race. Pugwash Secret Secretary General Martin Kaplan went so far as to suggest that even encouraging public debate about the potential weapons application of biotechnology is dangerous because it could simulate or stimulate military interest to help legitimize increased research by both East and West, as well as spur movements to limit civil civilian biotechnology. Another position has been loosely developed by a range of groups and individuals, notably the Green Party of West Germany and the Committee Responsible for Genetics, the CRG. A Boston-based public in interest group, the CRG board includes MIT's King, former member of the NIH Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee, Sheldon Krimsky, of the Tufts and Richards Novick of the New York Public Health Research Institute, Nobel Laureate in bio Biology George Wald of Harvard, Victor Seidel, former president of the American Public Health Association, and a variety of other leading thinkers on in the social and the technical implications of health and science. So again, reading from Gene Wars, we're now moving to page 168. These experts agree that the with Pugwash, that the building confidence and openness are essential, but they also think, as most parties to the Biological Weapons Convention have come to agree, that advances in biology pose new threats to 
biological arms control. These groups call for a greater control over military research, including a ban on secret research and restricting the range of permitted studies. The Greens have demanded a moratorium, a moratorium on all military research using genetic engineering. The dangers of broad substantive substantive public discussion of these issues are far outweighed by the contribution of open discourse to popular control over military initiatives, according to the CRG and others. They argue that attempts to shield the public for fear of encouragement of encouraging the military would merely ensure a low quality of debate and promote control by military and government technocrats. To an extent, these fears have already been realized. In the United States, particularly, biological weapons developments are poorly understood by the general public, scientists, and legislators alike. In the meantime, however, U.S. military leaders are unified around the explicit view that genetic engineering has profoundly, irrevocably altered the biological weapons landscape. While scientists weigh the exit um, exigencies of military biology. The Pentagon has built a massive biological weapons defense apparatus. Its size and nature are lightning rods for speculation and uncertainty about the U.S. commitment to biological weapons arms to biological arms control. The Dugway Aerosol Lab proposal is a particularly cogent example. Quote, Why should we accept the self-interest assurance of the Army that there that is not that it is not engaging in prohibited types of research at Dugway, unquote. Francis Boyle, professor of law at the University of Illinois, has asked, quote, if the Soviets were to make the same type of assurance for similar faculty that they built for allegedly defensive research on biological weapons, we would not believe them, and rightly so, unquote. Under current conditions of distrust, Boyle added, such provocative actions could begin, quote, an action-reaction cycle, and both sides will, in fact, quickly be acting as if the treaty were a nullity, unquote. And that's sort of the logic that we've been covering the whole time. Uh, this is Tyler, parenthetically speaking now, about, you know, how this goes on, and people think, oh, well, they would never do that, right? That they would never test these things out on civilians just to see what happens. Well, if you understand that there's always this, oh, well, it's offensive versus defensive, and now that it's defensive, we, we have to be proactive, and so we need to be out in front of the enemy, and if it's offensive, then we've got to have the latest and greatest uh, biotechnologies and uh, weapons so that we can be out in front of the enemy. So whether it's offensive, you know, vaccination and cancer research, or, or sorry, defensive vaccinations or cancer research or offensive, uh, you know, bioweapons research, um, you know, I'm not all that confident, first of all, that the vaccines that they're currently rolling out, whether it's Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or Moderna, um, have any chance of defeating the gain-of-function uh, biological weapons that apparently were leaked, or released. in this case, you know, we're uh, going with the theory that they've been released intentionally uh, out in front. Uh, but reading on, and back for emphasis, we're just going to read that last quote from uh, Francis Boyle, and rightly so, quote, under, or sorry, unquote, 
Under current conditions of distrust, Boyle added, such provocative actions could begin, quote, an action-reaction cycle, and both sides will in fact quickly be acting as if the treaty were a nullity, unquote. Another question about U.S. intentions involves its failure to enact specific domestic legislation that imposes penalties on biological weapons development by corporations, private citizens, or universities. This raises the prospect that a struggle that a struggling biotechnology company working under the cloak of secretary ostensibly of secrecy ostensibly to protect proprietary information might be tempted to develop new weapons for sale to the military CIA or another country or rebel army the corporation meanwhile would risk no civil or criminal penalties by doing so whether or not such a scenario is plausible the loophole contributes to an international suspicion Domestic laws that prohibit such activities have been established by several nations, including the Soviet Union. In Great Britain, the penalty for extreme violation can be life imprisonment or a fine of $10 million, enough to discourage any biotechnology corporation. Three bills have been introduced into the U.S. Congress since 1977. The most recent attempt was by Representative Peter Redeno in January 1987. So far, all have foundered. So I think that $10 million in today's currency would not be enough to dissuade a biotechnologies company. So I wonder, you know, what the current fines are. Anyways, so we'll move on from that. And uh, again, just welcome everyone back to the BioSci War today. We opened up there with a clip from Francis Boyle. And today is the self-fulfilling catastrophe episode number eight, I believe, in the BioSci War. And uh, you are watching me unfold the BioSci War live weekly. We haven't skipped a beat. Doesn't mean we're not going to. So I know there's some things coming up, for example, that I have planned in the spring and the summer where we may have some lapses in the BioSci War. But the plan is to continue with the BioSci War and unfolding, um, you know, the research that's out there. It's not anything that's new. It's not something that I'm, you know, a novel researcher finding all the latest and greatest tidbits, although we have been uncovering some very interesting things that I personally wasn't aware of. And so that's more or less what we're going to attempt to do today is continue down the journey and uh, go through some things with the individual Peter Dayzak we've been talking about, or Dayzak or however you say it, We've been mentioning that individual a few times and some funding that he has received uh, from the Pentagon on gain-of-function research. He is an individual heavily involved in gain-of-function research, and uh, we're going to be tying him in today. I'm not sure exactly, probably end up around the same amount of time that we usually do, and uh, if not, there's always going to be a continuation. I've already wrapped up a, a bunch of the information into the next episode in the series, and uh, that will likely unfold that next weekend, maybe one of the weekends where we skip a beat. So today's uh, March 27th, there may be two weeks to go by, and then we'll come back with the next episode in the BioSci War series. But I am excited and a little nervous to unpack the information today, only because uh, sometimes I'm only, you know, recently coming across some of the things that I cover, and I don't get it exactly right and I fumble, and it's live, and uh, I try to prepare. So I appreciate those for 
sticking with me throughout this. I don't claim to be perfect. I'm really just asking questions and some may find this beneficial as they may not have the aptitude or the time or to be able to go and research all these articles in the in the order or in the way that I have unfolded in the BioSci War. So I think it's been a beneficial series. I think that this will be one of the more beneficial series I've done as far as content production. Um, and we will see what unfolds in the future for Tyler Blair and TylerBlair.com productions and uh, within the Stones Media Network. And if I could just press the right button, we'd get here on the next article that I want to cover. Um, but actually, we have a little bit of opening monologue that we're going to do first, as we normally do. I'm just getting a little excited and a little ahead of myself, um, as uh, I'm hoping that the tech is going to keep up with us today. Uh, if not, the local recording should be strong. I do notice it might look a little fuzzy on on the uh, the old GooTube over there. So it could just be that, you know, there's a lot of people on the Internet locally where I'm at. Now, uh one of the things that we're doing this for, the reason for going into the BioSci War and studying the information that we have, is to see potentially how we could prevent, you know, outbreaks or prevent, you know, overreactions to outbreaks and pandemics, or to at least be more aware of the double-edged nature of the dual-use research and this gain-of-function research so that we can see the similar logic being displayed in the future and be able to call that out as uh, something that is it's fallacious reasoning. It's if, if you have a holistic worldview, you know, if there's moral relativism and you don't have any sort of worldview that holds back to any sort of truth, then you, and you can justify that the research that you're doing may end up killing billions or, you know, all, all, all life on the planet, all human life on the planet or, or else otherwise, then, you know, I suppose that that's a dangerous worldview to hold in, in, in the long run for humanity if we're holding this in, in a general sense of society, that this is the sort of things that we should be doing. Now, again, there is the issue of another entity on the planet researching these things and potentially releasing it. So if we don't research it here in our own labs, how do we get to the point where we can protect ourselves when these biological weapons might be re released? Um, so I do understand the predicament. So I, I suppose that the roots and to this problem are much deeper than just what we're looking at now is more of the, the branches and the bars on the cage or the, the leaves on the tree of the root of all evil. And the real problem here is an existential crisis and uh, uh, an immorality. Human, humanity has become degraded and fallen in a way that now... Uh, this is the results that we're getting. This is not the cause of anything. These are results of a degraded, broken human species. And when you look at things like uh, government and, uh, you know, master and slave dynamic relationships, uh, it's uh, something that's a pandemic of itself, uh, a, a worldview pandemic. And these are more uh, virus-like um, sheddings that we're seeing. These are the symptoms of an internal sickness that goes on, an internal uh, corruption, an internal crisis and pandemic. And so when I see people like Al Gore out there talking about the climate crisis or Bill Gates talking about the, the crisis in climate, you know, I, th I see these guys as far uh, more knowledgeable than people give them credit for into things like the occult 
and the dual-edged nature of reality and the duality of words and symbols. And I think, you know, and this could be an interpretation that you could take it or leave it, but that they're talking mainly about inter internal climate, internal division, building walls internally. You know, the walls were, were really Clinton walls when you want to get down to the brass tacks of it. The Clinton administration funded the uh, wall building and the fence building along the border heavily. The reason why they're still, we're talking about it so much in the Trump administration and things like these are internal crisis that these, these, these Masons, these, these people like Gore, more occult type people, they're talking internally, the crisis that they're creating in inside. It's an internal dynamic that they're talking about. They're always talking about it's heating up and now, oh, now it's cooling down and, you know, now we're going to cool it down by, you know, controlling the weather. And so like they're what they're talking about is controlling the the consciousness, mass consciousness. You know, uh, I was going to say mass control by Jim Keith back here that they're involved in manipulating reality as such as in from a consciousness level. So they're talking about, you know, a, pa a pandemic going on inside of us, a, a crisis, an epidemic of our consciousness and you can take that or leave it as you want but you know as you listen to things in the mainstream from a, from the perspective maybe that we're coming here in the bio sci war and then see these guys that know about a lot of the stuff that we're talking about but get up there and they're pitching their investments and how great their vaccines are going to be and oh if we just bring the numbers and the population to this co2 numbers equals zero then you know everything's going to be fine and you realize like we we uh, ex expel CO2 like we are a carbon based life form so when he's talking about bringing these numbers to zero you know what is he really talking about and when he's, when he's talking about uh, you know blocking out the sun with his uh, aerosol spraying and he's also involved in funding uh, nanotechnologies and Moderna's software technology like do you think that he's not crossing these technologies together in the grand scheme of things or that it's all coming from Bill Gates mind you know no there they, they, there's a higher agenda a lot of these agendas do connect and back in the beginning of covid going down i was saying you know they're going to connect this into global warming watch they're going to say like oh now that everything's locked down look how great it is that the planet is healing and if we can just continue in this direction you know so they're you know taking advantage of this and you know just this year had Bill Gates come out with his book, uh, How to Avoid a Climate Crisis, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, right? And I think we did read some of this into the preliminary episodes before we got into the actual bio sci war. But if you, you know, you don't think Bill Gates is involved in funding the Moderna vaccinations and also highly concerned about the climate dis disaster, some of the stories that came out this week showed that uh, Mr. Gates is funding the spraying of aerosol sprays into the air to prevent, uh, you know, global warming. And they're going to roll this out as if they haven't already been rolling it out. As we covered uh, John Brennan last week talking about how he's highly interested in how the aerosolized spraying of uh, things in the air could really help you out in the long run and save the whole planet. And then he was also talking about biological weapons being the number one threat. So, I mean, you put all this stuff together and what I see is that they're going to be spraying um, 
mRNA type software, uh, you know, nanotechnologies into the air. And in that way, they could prevent live biological weapons attacks from non-state actors, from state actors, from military, uh, from people making things up in their garage and releasing them in the subway system or the army or something doing it. And at that point, they could then release the daily, you know, uh, software update to fight against that. And, you know, I'm just putting this together with what DARPA has been talking about they're doing with this, with the nano spraying that we were talking about last week that's been going on. And uh, Bill Gates's different, you know, octopus arms that he's got all the things that he's got going on and the things they've been talking about this week, as, as well as, what was it, the, the CIA spraying uh, Columbia to, uh, with glyphosate <laughs> or something. And that, that might sound bizarre, but, like, let's just see something really quick like where did i see that i'm gonna do it live i'm gonna pull it up here while everybody gets a little glimpse of the the wide shot control room there let's see i saw, i thought i saw that on corbett so i'm gonna check here we're just gonna do it live It might have been from New World Next Week with James Evan Pilato. Let's see here. If we just do a little spray. Okay, so Biden. I said the CIA, I'm sure. What's the difference in the administration, really? <laughs> Biden pushes Colombia to restart glyphosate spraying program. Glyphosate was a Roundup, basically Monsanto's Roundup, right? Which also recently has been proved to cause cancer in human beings, and uh, people are getting settlements in court for glyphosate causing, I believe, lymphoma. Experts, oh, I love experts that are not cited. Just experts. We don't know exactly who they are. They're just experts. Uh, quote: The recently announced decision sends an unfortunate message to the Colombian people that your administration is not committed to abandoning the ineffective and damaging war on drugs internationally, unquote, by the Common Dreams staff. After six, a six-year halt, Colombia plans to restart the toxic aerial spraying of glyphosate on cocoa crops as early as next month, drawing most welcome support from the U.S. President Joe Biden as a sharp criticism from 150 regional experts who wrote to Biden, quote, your administration is implicitly endorsing former President Trump's damaging, damaging legacy in Colombia. On March 2nd, the Biden administration welcomed Colombia's decision to restart its aerial coca eradication program in Biden's first annual 2021 International Narcotics Control Strategic Report. The government of Colombia has committed to restarting its aerosol cocoa eradication programs. Okay, so I'm glad I pulled this up because I was off and I was thinking it was our government and they were over there like spraying the Colombian government's uh, land. But in this case, he's endorsing the Colombian government's own spraying of their own crops. I mean, this all might just be part of the bio war, honestly. I mean, uh, people recognizing more spraying going on. Who the hell knows what kind of real experimentations and things are going on in Colombia with the spring. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, something that came up this week. And that goes back into like what we were talking about last week with a lot of the aerosol. Uh, you go back to the, de the threat defense department 
article that we were reading on, you know, back in the early 2000s talking about uh, the threat of aerosol spraying as a biologic weapons agent. It's obviously if you put two and two together, it's not that hard, to, not that hard to think about that. Now, continuing on today, we're going to hit this article here in a sec, but just to kind of mix it up, do a little scratch on the DJ record. There was something in Grand Theft World that came up and I wasn't able to find the source and it was about the cancer research, uh, that from Eric Traub and uh, his what he said that the Germans started calling their bio, uh, offensive biological weapons research as a front was called cancer research or something like that. So let's we're going to go ahead and just read that into the record here again. Now that was read into the record here on the bio war, but I just wanted to pull that up. I'd be fine to cover it again in the Grand Theft World as well. Um, oh yeah, see, I, I get Traub and Blom confused. I've been making that mistake recently as well. Uh, this In this case, we're talking about uh, Blom. Um, let's just read here. Dr. Batchelder, and here, actually, they're reading about, what they're talking about here is the 8-ball. And the 8-ball, I believe, was the aerosolized laboratory built in Dietrich. Let's read a little bit about that. And that was uh, developed by this Dr. Batchelder, and we've read this into the record before. Inside the eight ball, airflow would simulate weather systems with the scientists on the outside controlling temperatures of the inside with a range of 55 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit humidity. Could be, humidity could be controlled inside the eight ball to fluctuate between 30 and 100%. This state-of-the-art environmental control would allow Dietrich scientists to understand how aerosolized biological agents would work at different altitudes in open air. The sphere would weigh more than 131 tons and would stand four stories tall. A catwalk around its center would allow scientists to observe through portholes, the test subjects sitting inside as they were exposed to the world's deadliest germs. The Chicago Bridge and Ironworks agreed to a delivery date of 1949. With the chamber's design complete, Dr. Batchelder prepared to travel to Germany. There was an important German scientist who had just now become available for an interview. This was a man who was known to more than almost anyone else in the world about biological weapons. He was particularly knowledgeable about weaponized bubonic plague. The physician was Dr. Kurt Blom the former Deputy Surgeon General of the Third Reich. He had just been acquitted of war crimes at the Nuremberg Doctors' Trial, and now he was back on the paperclip list. The Doctors' Trial had been for over 42 days. It was October 2, 1947, and a message from Heidenberg marked, quote, secret and confidential, unquote, arrived on the desk of the Chief of the Chemical Corps. It read, quote, Available now for interroga interrogation on biological warfare matters is Dr. Kurt Blum, unquote. A meeting was arranged for November 10, 1947, between Blum and Batchelder. Present alongside Dr. Batchelder were Dietrich doctors, Dr. Charles R. Phillips, and specialist in desterilization, Dr. Donald W. Falkner, and explosive experts, and Dr. A. W. Gorlick, a dosage, a dosage expert. Lieutenant 
R.W. Swanson represented the U.S. Navy, and Lieutenant Colonel Warren S.L. Leroy represented the Army's European Command Headquarters, and interpreter and a stenographer were also present. Dr. Blom was told in advance that everything discussed would be classified. Dr. Batchelder first spoke, setting the tone for, all, for the all-day affair, quote, We have come to interview Dr. Blom personally as well as professionally, unquote. Batchelder said, quote, We have friends in Germany, scientific friends, and this is an opportunity for us to enjoy meeting Dr. Blom and to discuss our various problems with him, unquote. To begin, Batchelder asked, quote, Would it be possible for Dr. Blom to give an overall picture of the information that he has? The nature of the world under discussion. Blom spoke in English, pausing on occasion for an interpreter to help him with a word. Quote, in 1943, I received orders from Goring for all the research of biological warfare, unquote, Blom explained. Quote, all the research for biological weapons would fall under the name Cancer Research. Cancer Research had already s started long before that, and I was already working all the time. But in order to keep this development secret, the Reich disguised it, unquote. Dr. Blom laid out the command structure of those involved in his biological weapons work under Himmler and where the men were now and uh, sorry it was surprisingly small group of quote around 20 unquote men as head of the Reich Research Council Blum explained Goring was a top was at the top and the Reich's dictator of science so the the important point there was just being that you know that it's not hard for a country in the sense of national security to disguise biological weapons research on the offensive to, you know, just call it cancer research or vaccine research, as we've seen in other instances. And, you know, the Germans do it, the Russians do it, and uh, the Americans do it, and the Japanese do it, and the Chinese do it. There's, re there's really, like, probably no country who has modern, you know, BSL-4 facilities who's not studying, like, offensive aerosolized agents, which is why everybody's all, you know, so concerned about everything, right? Uh, because there's that chance, and they know it, and everybody knows it, so they're going to keep escalating things under the guise of vaccine research or of cancer research, right? So... Uh, it's not that there's no legitimate cancer research, and it, but what we're finding out is that a lot of the cancers are caused by viruses injected inside of people. And what it appears like, if you read into a book that I still need to go through, but The Plague of Corruption over here, or look at Dr. Judy Mikovich's research, the way that cancers are getting inside of people are from vaccinations and injecting RNA and live viruses inside of people. Um, so yeah, just tying that in. And so you'll keep that clue there that as you move forward and you hear about the, the military or DARPA studying vaccines or, or cancer that, you know, there's always the other side of that dual edged use or that, uh, that, uh, double edged sword, you could say that could be, you know, leaked. Uh, somebody could get that information now with technology and make, uh, biological weapons homemade in their in their garage in their in their lab in their garage right so 
you know, the tracking, the tracing, the monitoring, that's what's going to be coming more and more uh, into people's lives as we, as we, they, they not only try to find ways to mitigate the biological weapons that have been released, uh, but also tracking like the release of biological weapons. Okay, so now we're going to get into a little bit of the gain of function today and reading from an article uh, Organic Consumers Association. I believe I've actually read this a little bit of this, so we're going to go through this kind of quickly um, and then we'll continue on. So COVID-19 reckless gain of function experiments lie at the root of the pandemic from July 23rd of 2020 by Ronnie Cummins and Alexis Baden-Meyer. Uh, it starts out here with a quote, gain-of-function studies are, according to the U.S. Department of Health Services research, which involves increasing the capacity of pathogen, of pathogen to cause illness. This method is controversial because it can also, be, also risk new viruses leaking out of laboratories and into populations. In the period of 2014 to 2018, this type of research was prohibited in the U.S., but in December of 2017, American authorities announced that these kinds of studies would be allowed. From the evidence which suggests that this is no naturally evolved virus by Askel Fridstorm, July 13, 2020. That might be an interesting article to check out as well. Uh, but we'll just stay on this side. So I just want to see what else I had highlighted here to read. This is a longer one. Okay, um, so I'm just going to skip down a little bit from that article. Uh, actually, let's read through this top part because um, there's some interesting links in here that you could also read through from this particular article if you're interested in going through and finding it. Um, but let's see, let's just read a little bit. Despite an ongoing cover-up by government authorities, the biotech industry, the military-industrial complex, the mass media... There is a growing scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was created most likely accidentally leaked from a dual-use military civilian lab in Wuhan, China. The ensuing pandemic, currently with 14 million infected and 585,000 dead, which has precipitated a global economic meltdown, is predictably yet preventable, is the predictable yet preventable collateral damage of a reckless decades-long and accident-prone biodefense biowarfare program carried out by the U.S., including with both the Obama and Trump administrations and their predecessors, China, Russia, and the other highly industrialized and militarized nations. Unbeknownst to the public, a shadowy international network of thousands of virologists, gene engineers, military scientists, and biotech entrepreneurs are weaponizing viruses and microorganisms in civilian and military labs under the euphemism of gain-of-function research. They hide behind the, quote, guise of, quote, biodefense and, quote, biomedicine, unquote. But as investigative reporters and bioweapons expert Sam Husseini writes, gain-of-function biowarfare scientists in labs such as Wuhan, China, or Fort Detrick, Maryland, are deliberately and recklessly invading international, evading international law. Quote, governments that participate in such biological weapons research generally distinguish between biowarfare and biodefense as if it 
as if to paint such defense programs as, necess as necessary. But this is rhetorical sleight of hand. The two concepts are largely indistinguishable. Biodefense implies tactic biowarfare breeding more dangerous pathogens for the alleged purpose of finding a way to fight them. While this work appears to have succeeded in creating deadly and infectious agents, including deadlier flu strains, such defense research is important in its ability to defend us from this pandemic. A growing arsenal of Frankenstein viruses and microorganisms have been created. And that was the end of that quote from that uh, gentleman. Uh, I don't see the name there. Um, Sammy Husani, that's the end of that quote. And moving on in the article from uh, COVID-19, reckless gain of function experiments lie at the root of the pandemic from July 23rd of 2020. A growing arsenal of Frankenstein viruses and microorganism microorganisms have been created despite U.S. and international laws supposedly banning biowarfare, bioweapons, and experimentation. A disturbing number... Let's see. A disturbing number of these so-called dual-use biowarfare biodefense labs have experienced leaks, accidents, thefts, and even deliberate releases like the 2001 anthrax attack over the past three decades. The creation of COVID-19, engineered by repeatedly, quote, passaging, unquote, a bat virus through animal and human cells, or a genetic engineering or splicing, specific genetic sequences into the virus, violating a ban of on gain-of-function experiments called for by many of the world's top scientists. These experiments also violated precautionary principles of global biowarfare convention designated to prevent, or sorry, designed to prevent the accidental or deliberate release of biological weapons of mass destruction. Despite the 24-7 story that the virus jumped accidentally from bats into humans, relentlessly peddled by the Chinese government, the World Health Organization, which was supposedly monitoring the Wuhan lab, the U.S. National Institute of Health, which providing funding for the Wuhan gain-of-function experiments, the Trump administration, global military and intelligence agencies, government and corporate-funded entities such as the EcoHealth Alliance and the mass media, there is mounting evidence that the COVID-19 was caused not by an accident in nature, but by a lab escape or leak. Fortunately, the media outlets aren't afraid to question this carefully orchestrated narrative. Here are a few examples. From GM Watch, the headline, The Lab Escape Theory of SARS-CoV-2 Origin Gaining Scientific Support from May 28th of 2020. Another article, a Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, titled, Did the SARS-CoV-2 Virus Arise from Bat Coronaviruses Research Program in Chinese Laboratory? Very possible, from June 4th, 2020. And there's like four or five other articles here. Uh, it just talks a little bit about gain-of-function, so we'll read this part. Gain-of-function experiments on bat viruses aren't new. Going back decades, these types of experiments have been publicly documented in a series of peer-reviewed scientific papers co-authored by director of Wuhan Labs, Dr. Sinjli Shi, popularly known by as the Batwoman. Publishers' papers revealed that researchers have been collecting samples and carrying out experiments to manipulate the bat coronavirus so that it can readily infect human cells. 
For example, the 2008 article in the Journal of Virology, Si Sheng Li, another scientist reported on how Chinese and U.S. scientists have genetically engineered SARS-like viruses from horseshoe bats to enable the virus to gain entry into human cells. These highly controversial gain-of-function experiments at the Wuhan lab were found funded in large part by the U.S. National Institute of Health, the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease, or NIAID, under the direction of Anthony Fauci, and the U.S.-based EcoHealth Alliance, led by Peter Daszak, who became, who became a ubiquitous spokesperson for the, quote, it evolved in nature and jumped into humans, unquote, story. Fauci, who since 1984 has held government positions under six presidents, both Republican and Democrat, has been, strongly, has been a strong advocate for the U.S. government funding of gain-of-function experimentation. Fauci claims with little or no justification that risky gain-of-function research can help develop new vaccines for pandemics, despite the fact that 30 years of these dangerous epidemics, or sorry, experiments, have not delivered any tangible benefits such as the cures or safe vaccines. In 2014, the Obama administration followed a series of lab accidents and responding to a petition signed by more than 300 global scientists declared a temporary, albeit partial, quote, pause, unquote, on funding of gain-of-function experiments in the U.S. exemptions to, to this, quote, pause, unquote, eventually reviewed by a secret government panel were nonetheless allowed to go forward. Uh, it's hard to skip forward, but in the essence of time, I'm just going to skip down a little bit and say, in Newsweek recently reported some of the details relating to the Trump administration's funding, scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and other institutes for work on gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses. Quote, in 2019, with the backing of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the National Institute of Health has committed $3.7 over six years for research that included some gain-of-function work. The program followed another $3.7 five-year project for the collecting and studying of bat coronaviruses, which ended in 2019, bringing a total to $7.4 In April 2020, Trump finally cut off NIH aid to the Wuhan for gain-of-function research as COVID-19 ravaged the globe. EcoHealth Alliance President Peter Daszak said that he and his team were merely studying how coronaviruses spread from bats to humans and claimed not to understand the rationale behind the decision to yank his grant. But Daszak and his collabor collaborators at the Wuhan Institute of Virology weren't just studying how the coronaviruses spread from bats to humans. They were actually making coronaviruses capable of spreading from bats to humans. They were the first to create a bat coronavirus capable of directly infecting humans. Rather than, quote, or it's in parentheses, rather than the first needing to evolve in an intermediate animal host, in parentheses. EcoHealth Alliance has since funded additional gain-of-function research that Dayzak has championed without acknowledging his connection. Gain-of-function research funded by EcoHealth Alliance included the 2015 coronavirus SARS chimera created by a team that included the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This research has been widely criticized by fellow scientists. 
In 2015, a team of researchers, including the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, created a hybrid version of the bat coronavirus from a virus called SHCO14, which is found in horseshoe bats in China, and the viruses that cause the SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Their chimeras were infected human airway cells, proving that the surface protein of SHCO14 had the necessary structure to bind to the key receptors on cells to infect them. Concerned scientists sounded the alarm. In 2015, Simon Wayne Hobson, a virologist at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, told Nature magazine that the researchers had created a novel virus that, quote, grows remarkably well, unquote, in human cells. Quote, if the virus escaped, nobody could predict the trajectory, unquote. Wayne Hobson disproved disapproved of the study because it would provide little benefit and revealed little about the risk that the wild SHCO14 virus in bats posed to humans. Richard Albright, a biodefense expert at Rutgers University, spoke about the same research saying, quote, the only impact of this work is the creation in a lab of a new non-natural risk, unquote. But Dezak spoke out in favor of the research, saying the study's findings, quote, move this virus from a candidate emerging pathogen to a clear and present danger, unquote. Dezak's statements, uh, starting again, Dezak's statement is odd, as it seems obvious that it was the research itself that made the virus a clear and present danger, and that couldn't be what he meant. Nature failed to mention that EcoHealth Alliance had funded the research with a U.S. grant. Even the creators of the coronavirus, or sorry, of the coronavirus SARS chimera questioned the wisdom of the tinkering with the virus to make them more dangerous to humans. As Nature reported in their paper, the study authors conceded that the funders may think twice about allowing such experiments in the future. Quote, scientific review panels may deem similar studies building chimeric viruses based on circulating strains too risky to pursue, unquote. They write, adding that the discussion is needed as to, quote, whether these types of chimeric viruses studied studies warrant further investigation versus the inherent risk involved, unquote. It's time for the U.S. government and all governments of the world to demonstrate their compliance with the global ban on chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction, dropping the dangerous pretense that the lab-created virus and microorganisms constitute valid biomedical and biodefensive research. We need a total U.S. and global ban on the dangerous gains-of-function experiments, and we need it now, before the next pandemic escapes or is deliberately released. And again, uh, that article um, was from the Organic Consumers Association from Ronnie Cummings and Alexis Barden, uh, Baden Meyer from July 23rd of 2020. And I do fully agree with the conclusion there at the end of what they said of what, how we need to, um, you know, raise awareness about these things to in order to help prevent it in the future. And I would also be interested and in, maybe I'll be able to link this up in the show notes, this article at the top they linked to um, about the ongoing evidence that shows that it's not a uh, just a, a virus that jumped from a uh, bat into a human being. And uh, let's see, the next article that I wanted to cover here really quick was called Lab-Made Coronavirus Triggers 
debate, and this is from The Scientist. And this is one of those articles that I'll show you a little trick. Um, this is what their paywall thing looks like. But if you install like on Chrome or Brave or I'm sure Firefox, there's a pocket app. That app you can also have on your phone and other apps synchronize with it. But the pocket, you can add this article like to pocket. You just click save to pocket there. And then in pocket, you can then get around that paywall, right? And this is a short article. So we're just going to read this from The Scientist by Jeff Axt. Uh, Jeff Axt. And... Uh, Sometimes with these articles as well, you can just do a quick refresh. It looks like this was from November 16th of 2015 by Jeff Axt. And uh, going to the article. Um, whoops, wrong article. Okay. Update March 11th, 2020 on social media and news outlets. A theory has circulated that the coronavirus at the root of the COVID-19 outbreak originated in a research lab. Scientists say there is no evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus escaped from a lab. Bleicher Nayad, Ralph Barrick, an infectious disease researcher at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill last week, November 9th, published a study on his team's efforts to engineer a virus with the surface protein of SHC014 coronavirus found in horseshoe bats in China and the backbone of one of the causes of human-like severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, in mice. The hybrid virus could infect human airway cells and caused disease in mice, according to the team's results, which were published in the Nature Medicine. I believe we've re read that article in, this, in the BioSciWar. The research demonstrated the ability of the SHC014 surface protein to bind and infect human cells, validating concerns that, in October 2013, the U.S. government put a stop to all federal funding for gain-of-function studies, with particular concern rising about influenza SARS and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. Quote, the NIH, National Institute of Health, has funded such studies because they help define the fundamental nature of human pathogen interactions, enable the assessment of the pandemic potential of emerging infectious agents, and inform public health and preparedness efforts, unquote, the NIH director Francis Collins said in a statement at the time. Quote, these studies, however, also entail biosafety and biosecurity risks, which need to be understood better, unquote. Beric's study on, and I believe this person is associated with, um, with Dayzac's EcoHealth Alliance and Predict program, and we'll hear more about them later in this episode. Beric's study on the SHC014 chimeric coronavirus began before the moratorium was announced, and the NIH allowed it to proceed during a review process, which eventually led to the conclusion that the work did not fall under the new restrictions. Barak told Nature, but some researchers, like the Wayne Hobson, disagree with that decision. The debate comes down to how informative the results are. Quote, the only impact of this work is the creation in a lab of a, non, of a new non-natural risk, unquote, Richard Ebright a molecular biologist and biodefense expert at Rutgers University told Nature. But Barak and others argued the study's importance. The results move this virus from a candidate emerging pathogen to a clear and present danger, 
Peter Dayzak, president of the EcoHealth Alliance, which sample, so we already heard that. Okay, so a little bit of repeat. Let's see, what's, and then there's that. Let's go ahead and close all these tabs down up to where we're at now. And see, and then there was also this moratorium mentioned several times on the gain of function research. This comes from, uh, this is pocket here, but it comes from the moratorium of gain of function research from the scientist, the same uh, author. Is this what? Oh, okay. And at the top it says, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, and Department of Health and Human Services last week, October 17th, announced it was launching a detailed review into its so-called gain-of-function research in which pathogens are manipulated to alter their capabilities. And just to confirm, this is from 2014, October 21st, 2014. Uh such research made headlines in 2012 after two groups instilled the avian influenza virus H5N1 with the ability to transmit between ferrets through the air. A feat prompted a year-long moratorium on H5N1 research, which in the face of threats like influenza, SARS, and MERS, which have killed scores in the Middle East and Asia, the government is instituting a pause on gain-of-function funding for experiments involving these deadly viruses. Quote, the NIH has funded such studies because they help define the fundamental nature of human pathogen interactions, enable the assessment of pandemic potentials of emerging infectious agents, and inform public health and preparedness efforts, unquote, the National Institute of Health. Director Francis Collins said at the statement, oh, this is a, uh, this might be the article that we already read, isn't it? We might have duplicated that up, or they're just reusing that quote. But either way, there, that was the moratorium. Um, October 22nd to discuss these oversights. Anyway, so that's the, they linked to this in the first article, so we were just reading through and following that up. They, uh, once they had the H5N1 strain, uh, you know, gain of function and can create airborne MERS and SARS, uh, that kind of sparked a little bit of a concern for everybody, you know, from what we're hearing here. And here's uh, a notice announcing the removal of the funding of pause for gain of function research projects. So even though it's highly dangerous and maybe we shouldn't be doing it, there's always that threat of some other country that's ahead of us, right? Or maybe they already know about something and that's out there and they want to get out in front of it with a vaccine. Then we need to get it back reintroduced. So here on notice announcing the removal of funding pause for gain of function research projects from December 19th of 2017. And uh, this comes from the NIH.gov. The purpose of this grant Notice is to notify applicants that in accordance with December 2017 issuance of the Department of Health and Human Services, quote, HHS framework for guiding funding decisions about proposed research involving enhanced potential pandemic pathogens, unquote, the National Institute of Health is removing the funding pause on the provisions of new or continuing funding of gain-of-function research projects. Background. On a October 17, 2014, the U.S. government announced that it would be instituting a funding pause on gain-of-function research that could be reasonably anticipated to confer attributes 
to influenza, MERS, and SARS viruses such that the resulting virus had enhanced pathogenicity or a transmissibility via the respiratory route in mammals. During the funding pause, the U.S. government overtook a deliberative process to assess the potential benefits and risks associated with these types of studies. Completion of the deliberative process resulted in the Department of Health and Human Services using the HHS-P3CO framework on December 19th of 2017. The HHS-P3CO framework is responsive and in accordance with the, quote, recommended policy guidance for departmental development of review mechanisms for potential pathogenic care oversight, unquote issued on January 9, 2017, and superseded the previous, quote, framework for guiding... What happened there? I hope I didn't lose my live stream. Okay. It looks like we're still there. For some reason, my monitor um, went out. Let's see. We have a, a something here in the chat. Still hard to believe that Dejak is part of the task force looking for the Wuhan origins. I'm sure he'll be honest. Okay. <laughs> um, I think my thumb either hit the wrong button or something, but I think we're good on the live stream. So just, you know, again, they reinstituted it, even though they knew there's a lot of interesting information here, but that's the line that we're following there is how they've taken it away because it was scary and dangerous and then they brought it back because it's worth it and who cares and the who cares i'll tell you that much so here we have another article and this one is from the washington times by cheryl k chumley and it says anthony fauci should explain why 3.7 million to the wuhan laboratory so he should ex be able to explain that right um, the article here written on April 27th of 2020 and as they'll put a paywall up we've used the pocket route and we'll read this a little bit of this article into the record President Donald Trump's here I'll get myself out of the way President Donald Trump's legal counsel Rudy Giuliani in a recent chat on the Cats Roundtable a New York AM 970 radio suggests the good US Attorney General move about now would be to investigate key members of the past Barack Obama administration on the Wuhan China laboratory to see what they knew about it and when they knew it. And then he mentioned Dr. Anthony Fauci specifically. And then he accused the prior team, Obama, of sending $3.7 to the lab in 2014, at the time when the same team Obama had banned the funding of any lab that was involved in the virus experimentation. And then the, he named Anthony Fauci as the guy who gave the money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This, after the Fox News reported more than a week ago that the federal authorities have, quote, high confidence, unquote, in the fact that the COVID-19 disease was caused by the new coronavirus originated in Wuhan. Ouch. Politically speaking, the perception of this one of this, oh, sorry, P politically speaking, the perception of one of this administration's loudest voices on the coronavirus front the one calling for shutdowns and shut-ins and contact tracing slash government tracking of American citizens, well, it doesn't look good to have him tied financially to Wuhan. Giuliani, as Red State noted, said this, quote, back in 2014, the Obama administration prohibited the U.S. from giving money to any laboratory, including in the U.S., that was fooling around with these viruses. 
prohibited. Despite that, Dr. Fauci gave $3.7 million to the Wuhan laboratory, and then, even after the State Department issued reports about how unsafe the laboratory was and how suspicious they were in the way they were developing a virus that could be transmitted to humans, we never pulled that money, unquote. Giuliani said if he were attorney general, he'd open an investigation. He also said he didn't, quote, want to make any accusations, unquote, but that, quote, something was, quote, going on, unquote. That, quote, there was more knowledge about what was going on in China with our scientific people than they disclosed to us in the, when it first came out, unquote. Think about it, he said, quote, I mean, unquote, Giuliani said, quote, if this laboratory turns out to be the place where the virus came from, we paid for it. We paid for the damn virus that's killing us, unquote. Fauci has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease since 1984, and while his agency did send $3.7 million in a grant to EcoHealth Alliance to study, quote, the risk of future coronavirus COV emergence from wildlife using in-depth field investigation across the human-wildlife interface in China, unquote, not all the money went to Wuhan, the Washington Examiner reported. It's also not clear that Fauci was the actual guy who made the funding decision. Decision Still, still, Fauci was the guy in charge of the agency. Meanwhile, the larger question is why American taxpayers would be funding the Wuhan lab at all. Quote, if I were U.S. attorney, I'd open an investigation into the Wuhan laboratory, Giuliani said. Quote, and I'd want to know what, what did we know? How much did we know about the bad practices were there. Who knew about it? And who sent them money anyways? And that person would be sure as heck be in front of a grand jury trying to explain to me, what are you, asleep? Unquote. Good questions, all. Fauci, for his part, has plenty of opportunity. He should, uh, should he choose, to speak out and address the matter. In fact, he's got the eyes of the nation upon him, not to mention the ears of the president. And this is back when Trump was president. One of the White House press co conferences, he ought to take quick time out of for telling Americans to stay home, stay quarantined, and stay away from work, and talk about the small matter of 3.7 million funding from his agency to the Wuhan lab. Millions of near-house arrested Americans deserve to know. And that's the end of that article. Again, uh, from the Washington Times. It, it, the paywall didn't come up, so maybe I could have just read that right there on... The Washington Times. But yeah, I mean, why isn't Fauci ever talking about that? They, or Dayzak and how they know that their funding and the research they've been doing is intentionally trying to get these viruses out into uh, transmissibility from the zoological, from the animal world to the human world. And then they do it and then they gain a function that and then they add a little AIDS to it and they add a little MERS to it and they add a little H1N1, H5N1 you know, little HIV, a little spike receptor in there, you know, little spike protein, and get these things to try to be more vir virulent and more infectious to human beings. And then, uh, you know, it becomes illegal in one country, so they set up their own Fort Detrick lab in Maryland, in Wuhan, the, Wu the Oswald Institute of Virology over there in Wuhan, China, and set that up and fund it to do the same research that had a moratorium on it here, 
And that's how they get around these these loopholes, right? So, oh, it wasn't. No, we weren't funding any 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 uh, gain of function research in the United States, but we did give three point seven million to China to continue that research in their own labs, and which we you know fund and control from over here. And then when it leaks out of Wuhan, China, this this virus that jumps from a bat and suddenly the whole world is at risk of being infected, something that doesn't ever happen in nature and never is going to happen, maybe in one-off instances, and people do get sick from viruses that animals carry around, that's true, but worldwide pandemics that suddenly outbreak and everybody's at risk all of a sudden in multiple places all over the world, this is clearly an intentional release, in my opinion. This has been something designed to be released and then attempt these uh, gene therapy vaccinations where it's really nothing more than extinction-based technologies and um, population control technologies by eugenicists to cause people to be sterile, to cause people to be sick, to cause certain races to suffer and die off. And that's uh, the theory that we're putting forward here that you have a neo-Nazi faction, a, a faction of eugenicists who have become obsessed and are infiltrated the, the U.S. military, high levels of the U.S. government, and have a sort of black ops uh, operation to cull the population down and rolled that out in 2020 with the release of a virus that they very well knew would be highly infectious, highly contagious, something that they likely already have antidotes for and maybe even vaccines that they could give to their people, their troops and their people, um, you know, on their side. And then the rest of the world is getting sick with no cures and they're using this gene drive, uh, gene therapy technologies now to insert what could be quite catastrophic technologies into the human uh, genome and who knows what the future holds for the slave race here on humanity who's being experimented on on a mass level uh, with these vaccines. But anyways, a lot more to Fauci and what he knows about the origins of this thing that we're not to know about, right? That we're not to be told about. We're just told that we need to shut up, uh, take the pay cuts that are being caused by all this hyperinflation that they're doing and you know just deal with the situation uh, maybe wearing full body masks uh, and body suits again would be the right response <laughs> to what's going on. Now, Peter Dayzak, we plugged him in here to the brain. Uh, Dayzak maybe is the right way to say it. And he's over Operation Predict, where they're testing these viruses out in labs and trying to predict what would happen if they got out into the human population. Um, he's also over the Eco Health Alliance and works under this uh, uh, institution such as the Center for Disease Control, which is a militarized, uh, uniformed military service, and uh, the, worked with agencies like the Columbia University. And we're just getting him plugged in here, so I'm just showing you that in the brain there is uh, Peter Dayshack. And in the bio war, I've got a lot more plugged in on the left as far as resources go for the bio war. I plan to have like all the main resources that you see um, when you go. I'm trying to keep a comp compiled list when you go to each episode. You pull it up, go to the episode, right? And you'll see a see also section. In the see also section are like what I think are the most important references that we've come across so far. I'll uh, continue to update that. And then 
get those see also sections plugged into the brain on the left so that you can easily access in the brain model if you go to BioSciWar, you'll have all the resources on the left you can pull that up quickly while well, if you don't need to pull something up years from now after hearing this and you knew that it was in there and just couldn't remember that will be a place where you can find those things and uh, this could be found just at tylerbloyer.com slash brain um, it's also in the menu in the menu items here you can just click on the creature of control web brain and you'll get to that page uh, now moving on i'm going to have the robot read us this article on dejac so we can get more familiar with peter and uh, it's a longer article uh, today we are going a little bit deep in this information but i had questions on who this character is he kept coming up the eco health alliance as you saw there maybe related to the um, wuhan leak and the funding might have been through uh, nid or nih and through uh, agencies and laboratories that peter dejak was involved with with the predict operation and so give me a sec here i'll get this configured but we'll start in with the robot reading this uh, particular article today um, i'm going to pull it down like this duplicate it pull this over here we're doing it live and uh, then we'll switch to this screen which will give you a nice view of this black <laughs> screen and this is truly doing it live. And we'll just go ahead with this article. This is Peter, show me the money Dejak pulls in big bucks through EcoHealth Alliance for risky virus research from September 19th of 2020 from Alexis on the Animal Rights Environment Organic Consumers Association. And I thought this was a wonderful article explaining more about Peter Dejak and the research and surroundings behind this particular individual. So again, I'm just going to step away while we let the robot read it to us. I feel like that's been a good process to give me a quick break. These are longer shows. If this was just an hour-long show a week, I could do all the reading and step away. We've already been going for an hour and a half, and we're not even quite halfway through. So I will just allow this to... Uh, I'm just trying to get it positioned right so you can see like that, and then... Peter show me the money Dasik pulls in big bucks, through EcoHealth Alliance, for risky virus research. Peter Dasik, president of EcoHealth Alliance, is a top scientific collaborator, grant writer, and spokesperson for virus hunters and gain-of-function slash dual-use researchers, in labs both military and civilian. Dasik works with dozens of high-containment laboratories around the world that collect pathogens and use genetic engineering and synthetic biology to make them more infectious, contagious, lethal or drug-resistant. These include labs controlled by the U.S. Department of Defense, in countries in the former Soviet Union, the Middle East, Southeast Asia and Africa. Many of these labs are staffed by former biological weapons scientists. See Arms Watch's reports. Before the Biological Weapons Convention was ratified, this research was called what it is, Biological Weapons Research. Now, it's euphemistically called gain-of-function or dual-use research. Gain-of-function research to alter coronaviruses for the infection of humans goes back to 1999 or earlier, years before the first novel coronavirus outbreak. On behalf of the U.S. government, often the military, Dasik scours the globe for animal pathogens and brings them back to the lab to be catalogued, investigated, and manipulated. 
Dasik and others justify their research this way, if slash when an outbreak of a new virus occurs, they can compare it to the ones in their labs, and maybe glean how the novel virus emerged. A recent Wired magazine article quoting Dasik described how a virus collected in 2012 was found to be a 96% match to SARS-CoV-2 in 2020. The search for the source of SARS which killed more than 770 people two decades ago has given us a head start for the current hunt. Wearing hazmat suits and equipped with mist nets, a team from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, together with the ecologist and president of EcoHealth Alliance Peter Dasuk, ventured into limestone caves to collect feces and blood samples from thousands of roosting bats before testing them for novel coronaviruses in the lab. At the time, we were looking for SARS-related viruses, and this one was 20% different, says Dasuk. We thought it's interesting, but not high risk. So we didn't do anything about it and put it in the freezer. The group has found around 500 bat-borne viruses in China over the last 16 years, but only flagged those that most resembled SARS to the authorities a lack of funding meant they couldn't further investigate the virus strain now known to be 96% genetically similar to the virus that causes COVID-19. Interesting though that story is, it fails to explain how SARS-CoV-2 evolved. Some scientists say it would take 50 years for RATG13 to turn into SARS-CoV-2. Others propose theories on how the virus might have evolved so quickly, yet still suspect that it escaped from the Wuhan lab. Certainly, to learn that the closest known relative to SARS-CoV-2 has been in the care of the gain-of-function researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, with for seven years does nothing to allay suspicions that the virus infected humans only after being tinkered with in a lab. Still, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is going all in on virus hunting. The institute just announced a five-year, $82-million investment in a new global network of centers for research in emerging infectious diseases, including gain-of-function experiments to determine what genetic or other changes make animal pathogens capable of infecting humans. DASIC's EcoHealth Alliance will receive $7.5 million from this grant. This is on top of $100.9 million that EcoHealth Alliance has received in government grants and contracts since 2003. What was that DASIC said about how a lack of funding meant they couldn't further investigate the virus strain now known to be 96% genetically similar to the virus that causes COVID-19? Critics of virus hunting say scientists like DASIC could make a greater contribution to human health by going after the viruses that commonly infect humans, not the ones that never have. According to a 2018 Smithsonian Magazine report, not everyone thinks that discovering viruses and their hotspots is the best way to prevent pandemics. Dr. Robert B. Tesh, a virologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch, says we don't understand enough about zoonotic viruses to create predictive models. A lot of the stuff they produce is hype. It's more PR than science. Dasik's research might be more hype and public relations than science but the Department of Homeland Security's National Biosurveillance Integration Center, NBIC, has chosen to rely on it. NBIC gave Dasik's EcoHealth Alliance a $2.2 million contract, 2016-2019, to create a ground-truth network of subject matter experts who could provide contextual information pertaining to biological events. The context Dasik invariably provides is a compelling one.
destruction of forests and other encroachments on wildlife habitats, especially the hunting of wild animals and the sale of live animals in wet markets, is forcing humans and animals into uncomfortable proximity. This is bad for vulnerable and endangered species, as well as for humans who are at increasing risk for contracting novel zoonotic diseases. Who isn't shocked and appalled to learn that people eat bats, or that marvelously strange and adorable animals you've never heard of pangolins, civet cats have had their habitats destroyed and are now being sold for meat at live animal markets. Dasik's framing of the issue what has come to be known as the One Health approach has been heartily embraced by the U.S. military. But what if the stories being spun by Dasik and his fellow government-supported subject matter experts aren't supported by the evidence? Let's look at EcoHealth Alliance's story about Ebola and bushmeat. False Narrative, Tragic Outcomes From 2011 to 2014, EcoHealth Alliance had a $164,480 purchase order contract from the Centers for Disease Control in Pittsburgh for bushmeat. No more information than that is available on that contract, HHSD 2002011M41641P, but the money likely funded a paper Dasik and his colleagues published in 2012. The 2012 paper, Zoonotic Viruses Associated with Illegally Imported Wildlife Products, was used in August 2014, at the height of the West African Ebola pandemic, as the basis for a Newsweek article titled, Smuggled Bushmeat is Ebola's Backdoor to America. The article, which quoted an EcoHealth Alliance spokesperson, spread a false, not to mention racist and xenophobic, narrative, one that subsequently would be thoroughly debunked, that bushmeat smuggled to the U.S. from Africa could transmit Ebola to Americans. In January 2015, a meeting of the UK Bushmeat Working Group convened. The group countered Dasik's misinformation with the facts in an article titled, Ebola and Bushmeat, Myth and Reality. The article stated, As the Ebola virus can remain viable in untreated carcasses for up to three to four days, there is a risk of transporting it to bushmeat markets, although there is no evidence of this to date. However, the risk of transmitting Ebola in bushmeat overseas to Europe or the USA is extremely low, given the total travel time and the fact that these carcasses are usually smoked which probably inactivates the virus. The risk of spread to new areas lies with the movement of infected people, not infected meat. Tragically, the misinformation about bushmeat as a primary cause of Ebola transmission had already been communicated to West Africans in the midst of the crisis, through international health organizations, including DASIC's funder, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. Dasik's misinformation campaign overshadowed the truth that the only way Ebola was actually being transmitted during the pandemic was via contact with the bodily fluids of people sick with Ebola, or with their corpses. Perpetuating Mythical Theories The SARS pandemic is another instance where Dasik's theories didn't pan out. It is commonly accepted that the SARS pandemic began in 2002, when humans caught a bat virus from civet cats at a wet market in Guangdong. China. But Dasik and his collaborators admit they have no evidence to explain how the virus leapt from bats to civets to humans. SARS-CoV was found in civets at the Guangdong wet market, but civets aren't the natural reservoir of this virus. Bats are. 
only the civets at the market and no farm raised or wild civets carried the virus. None of the animal traders handling the civets at the market had SARS. When Dasik and his collaborators at the WITH searched the cave in Yunnan for strains of coronavirus similar to human versions, no single bat actually had SARS. Genetic pieces of the various strains would have to be recombined to make up the human version. Adding to the confusion, Yunnan is about 1,000 kilometers from Guangdong. So, how did viruses from bats in Yunnan combine to become deadly to humans, and then travel to civets and people in Guangdong, without causing any illnesses along the way during this 1,000-kilometer trip? No one knows. Just like no one knows how SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, leapt from bats to pangolins to humans. The most recent study, broad host range of SARS-CoV-2 predicted by comparative and structural analysis of ACE2 invertebrates in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, showed that the SARS-CoV-2, which infects human cells through binding of the viral spike protein to ACE2, has a very high binding affinity to ACE2 in old-world monkeys, apes, and humans. But in bats, the binding affinity is low and in pangolins it is very low. The authors also noted that neither experimental infection nor in vitro infection with SARS-CoV-2 has been reported for pangolins. Dasik continues to tell his bat origin story, but the science doesn't back it up. That along with the fact that dozens of labs conduct gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses and there are troubling safety issues at these labs is why the National Institutes of Health, NIH, is investigating the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 escaped from a lab. Inquiring minds at the NIH want to know. On July 8, the NIH sent a letter to DASIC asking EcoHealth Alliance to arrange for an inspection of the WITH by an outside team that would examine the facility's lab and records with specific attention to addressing the question of whether WITH staff had SARS-CoV-2 in their possession prior to December 2019. The WITH and the Wuhan University School of Public Health are listed as subcontractors for EcoHealth Alliance under a $3.7 million NIH grant titled, Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence. The two institutions also worked as collaborators under another $2.6 million grant, Risk of Viral Emergence from Bats, and under EcoHealth Alliance's largest single source of funding a $44.2 million subgrant from the University of California at Davis for the PREDICT project, 2015-2020. It's the $44.2 million PREDICT grant that EcoHealth Alliance used to fund the gain-of-function experiment by with scientist Zhengli Shi and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Ralph Barrick. She and Barrick used genetic engineering and synthetic biology to create a new bat SARS-like virus that can jump directly from its bat hosts to humans. Dasik described the work being done by She and Barrick in a 2019 interview. You can manipulate them coronaviruses in the lab pretty easily. Spike protein drives a lot of what happens with the coronavirus, zoonotic risk. So, you can get the sequence, you can build the protein and we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC to do this. Insert it into a backbone of another virus, and do some work in the lab. The work, a SARS-like cluster of circulating bat coronaviruses shows potential for human emergence, published in Nature in 2015 during the NIH's moratorium on gain-of-function research, was grandfathered in because it was initiated before the moratorium, 
officially called the U.S. Government Deliberative Process Research Funding Pause on Selected Gain-of-Function Research Involving Influenza, MERS, and SARS Viruses, and because the request by Xi and Barak to continue their research during the moratorium was approved by the NIH. As a condition of publication, Nature, like most scientific journals, requires authors to submit new DNA and RNA sequences to GenBank, the U.S. National Center for Biotechnology Information Database. Yet the new SARS-like virus she and Barak created wasn't deposited in GenBank until May 2020. Why stop with Wuhan? NIH is right to require that the WITS lab and records be opened to outside inspectors. But why is the government focusing on just one of EcoHealth Alliance's projects, when the organization has received $100.9 million in grants, primarily from the Department of Defense, to sample, store and study bad coronaviruses at labs around the world? Coronaviruses, both those that have been collected from animals and those that have been created through genetic engineering and synthetic biology, at all of these labs should be compared with SARS-CoV-2. DASIC's collaborators working under contracts with the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, aren't allowed to conduct gain-of-function research unless specifically approved to do so by the Potential Pandemic Pathogen Care and Oversight, P3CO, Committee. This committee was set up as a condition for lifting the 2014-2017 moratorium on gain-of-function research. The P3CO committee operates in secret. Not even a membership list has been released. The only information provided to the public is that Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response Robert Cadlec appointed HHS Senior Science Advisor Christian Hassel as its chair. It's time to open the records of the PC3O Committee's deliberations and decisions to examine all gain-of-function research on coronaviruses. And every lab manipulating these viruses should have their coronaviruses compared to SARS-CoV-2. The Pentagon's Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, for its Cooperative Biological Engagement Program, now called the Biological Threat Reduction Program, isn't supposed to fund gain-of-function, what they call dual-use, research at all. It's time to determine whether this prohibition on dual-use funding has been adhered to, especially in light of the investments the Pentagon is making across the globe in the construction of new laboratories for the consolidation and securing of pathogens. DTRA's mission was to dismantle the biological weapons programs of hostile or destabilized countries. Instead it is being used to develop new biological weapons programs in dozens of countries around the world. Even if these programs are purely defensive, they proliferate, around the globe pathogens with pandemic potential, even though it's been difficult to keep these dangerous germs under control here in the U.S., see the global proliferation of high-containment biological laboratories, understanding the phenomenon and its implications, and the Government Accountability Office's reports, biological select agents and toxins, actions needed to improve management of DOD's biosafety and biosecurity program, and high-containment laboratories, comprehensive and up-to-date policies and stronger oversight mechanisms needed to improve safety. EcoHealth's tentacles reach far and wide. EcoHealth Alliance is very much involved in the Pentagon's proliferation of high-containment biological laboratories. It is conducting DTRA-funded work in the following countries, which are all participants in the Pentagon's Biological Threat Reduction Program. Tanzania, 
in Tanzania, a country that is considered only partly free, which has a history of foreign medical experimentation and which didn't ratify the Biological Weapons Convention until 2019, EcoHealth Alliance has a $5 million Pentagon contract, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, reducing an emerging health threat in Tanzania. Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, CCHF, is a tick-borne disease, originally only infecting animals, that was discovered by Otis and Callista Kazi while working for the Rockefeller Foundation in Nigeria. There was only ever one case of CCHF in Tanzania, and that was in 1986. Gain-of-function research on CCHF is being conducted at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Bio and Agrodefense Facility, NBAF, to determine the mechanisms of CCHF transmission including development of CCHF tick and animal infection methods and CCHF tick animal transmission models. The National Bio and Agro Defense Facility will take over the mission of the Plum Island Animal Disease Center and become the lead facility for foreign animal disease research. The National Bio and Agro Defense Facility Biosafety Level 4, BSL 4 Zoonotic and Emerging Infectious Disease Team CCHF Virus Surveillance Project is investigating the interface between tick vectors, livestock, and pastoralist and resource-poor farming communities in Tanzania as well as the disease's molecular pathogenesis. Tanzania is the origin of chikungunya, a mosquito-borne virus that the U.S. has long cultivated as a potential biological weapon. According to a patent held by the University of Texas for a chimeric chikungunya virus created through genetic engineering and synthetic biology. The 39 documented laboratory infections reported by HHS in 1981 strongly suggest that chikungunya virus is infectious via aerosol route. Chikungunya virus was being weaponized by the U.S. Army Army when the offensive program was terminated. Tanzania is one of the countries where bat coronaviruses were collected for the PREDICT project. Tanzania has one Biosafety Level 3, BSL-3, laboratory, the privately owned Ifakara Health Institute, which is partnering with PREDICT to launch concurrent surveillance of wildlife and people in at-risk areas for viral spillover and spread. South Africa, in South Africa, which had a notorious apartheid-era biological weapons program, EcoHealth Alliance has a $5 million Pentagon contract, 2019-2024, reducing the threat of Rift Valley fever through ecology, epidemiology, and socioeconomics. This is on top of a $4.9 million grant, 2014-2019, understanding Rift Valley fever in the Republic of South Africa. The last human outbreak of Rift Valley fever in South Africa occurred in 2010, when the government reported 237 confirmed cases, including 26 deaths from nine provinces. But there were also a few cases in 2018 among farm workers who slaughtered infected animals during an outbreak in livestock. The fever can spread from animals to humans if they come into contact with the blood and other body fluids of an infected animal. The U.S. military has conducted offensive biological weapons research on Rift Valley fever. South Africa's biological weapons program included the weaponization of Rift Valley fever virus obtained from the U.S. government. Known as Project Coast, South Africa's biological weapons program murdered anti-apartheid activists with narcotics and poisons, 
and attempted a genocide of the black majority by spreading AIDS and by developing pathogens and vaccines that would selectively attack black people with illness, death, and infertility. Dr. Wouter Bassan, the project's top scientist, told Pretoria High Court in South Africa that the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency threatened him with death, presumably to prevent him from revealing the deep connections between Project Coast and the U.S., which had forced President F.W. de Klerk to shut down the project and destroy its records. Bassan named the U.S. Centers for Disease Control as his source of eight shipments of Ebola, Marburg, and Rift Valley viruses, but claimed that he had obtained the viruses by posing as a medical researcher and hiding his affiliation with the South African Defense Forces. Surveys of bats in South Africa found no evidence of bats being natural carriers of Rift Valley fever virus, but experiments have shown that bats can be infected with it in a laboratory setting. A bat coronavirus collected in South Africa in 2011 was thought to be the closest known relative of the MERS-CoV virus that emerged in Saudi Arabia in 2012, until a 100% match for MERS-CoV was detected by Dasik and his colleagues in viral RNA fragments from an Egyptian tomb bat found near the home of one of the first MERS victims in Saudi Arabia. Liberia, in Liberia which didn't ratify the Biological Weapons Convention until 2016, EcoHealth Alliance has a $4.91 million Pentagon contract, reducing the threat from high-risk pathogens causing febrile illness in Liberia. Febrile illnesses include Ebola, which has been the subject of some of the most controversial dual-use research. While the U.S. has a sordid history of biological weapons experimentation on its own people with conscientious objectors, military volunteers, and the general public as frequent subjects there were some biological weapons tests the Department of Defense considered too unethical to perform within the continental U.S. Those tests were conducted in other countries, including Liberia. Likewise, mirroring medical experimentation on African Americans, there is a history of colonial medical experimentation in Liberia going back to 1926 when the Firestone Tire Company financed surveys of local diseases they feared could curtail the profitability of their rubber plantations. More recently, a failed Pentagon-funded Ebola drug trial caused many Liberians to suspect that the subsequent Ebola outbreak was the fault of Tecmara, the pharmaceutical company that created TKM100802. Doubt surrounded the official story, promoted by Dasuk, that the West African Ebola outbreak happened because bats flew in with the Ebola Zaire virus from 2,500 miles away. In January 2014, the Phase I trial for TKM100802 was launched, but put on clinical hold by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration due to high cytokine release in participants. In a dose escalation, healthy volunteer study, one, of two, participants dosed at the highest level of 0,5 mg-kg experienced cytokine release syndrome. Cytokine release syndrome is a pro-inflammatory reaction that occurs when activated lymphocytes and slash or myeloid cells release soluble immune mediators following administration of certain therapeutic agents, especially monoclonal antibodies. Onset can be rapid, within hours of administration, and can be life-threatening. Ultimately, TKM100802 proved useless for Ebola patients, but the Pentagon's $140 million investment, and the boost Tecmara stock experienced on speculation that Ebola would soon spawn the next $1 billion drug, 
made many investors rich. Suspicions were raised because the TKM100802 Phase I trial on healthy volunteers began in January 2014, before the first cases of the Ebola outbreak in March 2014. Later, the World Health Organization's Pierre Formenti traced the first case back to late December 2013, in Milyandu, Guinea. There, 50 meters from the home of patient zero, another researcher, Fabian Leendertz, found DNA fragments that matched the Angolan free-tailed bat, a species known to survive experimental infections with Ebola. Then, Dasik's EcoHealth team found viral RNA fragments of Ebola Zaire in a greater long-fingered bat, captured in 2016 in Liberia's Sunakwelimon district, which borders Guinea. There was a 1982 article in Annals of Virology in which a trio of Germans reported finding Ebola antibodies in 26 of 433 Liberians, 6%. Bats aren't the only place to look for Ebola. There's a BSL-4 lab that was handling Zaire Ebola before the pandemic in Canima, Sierra Leone. This is where international law attorney Francis Boyle, a drafter of the U.S. Biological Weapons and Anti-Terrorism Act passed into law in 1981, believes the pandemic originated. There's also Liberia's Monkey Island. As the Washington Post reported, that's where 66 chimpanzees have been since 2004, when they were abandoned by the American scientists at the Liberian labs of the New York Blood Center. From 1974 to 2004, the New York Blood Center captured wild chimps, engaged them in medical experimentation and then released them back into the jungle in a project known as V-Lab 2, Virology Lab 2, which maintained a colony of 200 chimps. V-Lab 2 was built from the remnants of the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine. Built by Firestone in 1946, the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine had once employed 60 scientists, but by 1974, medical doctor Earl Reber was there alone with eight chimps. The roots of the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine go back to the research begun in 1926 by Harvard Department of Tropical Medicine Chief Richard Pearson Strong. Virus hunters like Dasik should have a keen interest in a population of chimpanzees that, for nearly 100 years, has been caught, injected with viruses and then released back into the wild, especially considering the work of the researchers who handled the chimps. The New York Blood Center is at the center of a theory on the origin of HIV-AIDS, that it came from a contaminated hepatitis B vaccine the center distributed to gay men from 1978 to 1981. The New York Blood Center also tested its vaccine on Liberians. Richard Pearson Strong is infamous for killing 13 men when he infected a group of 24 inmates of Manila's Bilibid prison with plague through a contaminated cholera vaccine. That was prior to his work in Liberia, which is only now being explored, and also involved experiments with humans as well as chimpanzees. Georgia, EcoHealth Alliance has a $6.5 million Pentagon grant for understanding the risk of bat-borne zoonotic disease emergence in Western Asia, 2017-2022. ArmsWatch reports that this grant involves genetic studies on coronaviruses in 5,000 bats collected in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Jordan. The studies were conducted at the Luger Center, a $161 million Pentagon-funded biolaboratory in Georgia's capital, Tbilisi. 
Russia claims the Georgia lab is the site of a U.S. biological weapons program. According to USAspending.gov, EcoHealth Alliance has received $2.88 million in grants for work in Georgia. The Luger Center is one of the labs that hosts EcoHealth Alliance's Western Asia Bat Research Network. Malaysia, in Malaysia, which is only now in the process of creating a legislative framework for enforcing the Biological Weapons Convention, EcoHealth Alliance had a $1.6 million Pentagon grant, 2017-2019, for serological biosurveillance for spillover of henipaviruses and filoviruses at agricultural and hunting human-animal interfaces in peninsular Malaysia. There are no known cases of filovirus infections in humans in Malaysia. But Malaysia is the origin of the Nipah virus, first recognized in 1999, during an outbreak among farmers and farm workers in factory farms and slaughterhouses producing pork. The virus spread to Singapore. In all, there were 265 cases of acute encephalitis with 105 deaths, and the billion-dollar pig farming industry nearly collapsed. No new outbreaks have been reported in Malaysia since 1999. Nipah virus, a zoonotic pathogen for which no treatments exist, is the inspiration for the film Contagion. The virus can only be experimented on in BSL-4 laboratories. The National Bio and Agro Defense Facility in Kansas will be the first biocontainment facility in the U.S. where research on Nipah and Ebola, a filovirus, can be conducted on livestock. In 2019, Nipah Malaysia was among the deadly virus strains shipped from Canada's National Microbiology Lab to the WITH. Henipaviruses, in the paramyxavirus family, were the first emerging diseases linked to bats. In June 2012, in the same Chinese cave, actually an old copper mine where workers doing cleanup had become sick and died, in which Daseks with colleagues found SARS-CoV-2's most closely related coronavirus, another frequent collaborator of Daseks, Zhaikyong Wu of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, found a new henipavirus-like pathogen in a rat, naming it the Majiang paramyxavirus, after the county in Yunnan province where it was found. Malaysia was the planned site of a BSL-4 laboratory run by the pharmaceutical company Emergent Biosolutions for the production of a halal version of the Biothrax vaccine. But that project failed. In addition to the Pentagon funding, DASIC obtained $1.7 million in grants, 2002-2005, from NIH's Fogarty International Center for Anthropogenic Change and Emerging Zoonotic Paramyxoviruses. In 2012-2014, DASIC had a $569,700 grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Service for development of a great ape health unit in Sabah, Malaysia. DASIC has a new National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases grant, Understanding Risk of Zoonotic Virus Emergence in Eyed Hotspots of Southeast Asia, for $1.5 million, 2020. The grant is for an Emerging Infectious Diseases Southeast Asia Research Collaboration Hub, IDSEARCH, that brings leaders in emerging disease research from the US, Thailand, Singapore and the three major Malaysian administrative regions together to build an early warning system to safeguard against pandemic disease threats. This team will identify novel viruses from Southeast Asian wildlife and characterize their capacity to infect and cause illness in people. Other Pentagon Contracts 
Echo Health Alliance had a $1 million Pentagon contract, 2017-2019, for an inbound bio-event information system, IBIS, a web-based application and early warning system for global infectious disease bio-events that threaten the U.S. via international transportation networks. Echo Health Alliance also had another $4.5 million Pentagon contract, HDTRA 115C0041, for 2015-2017. No other information is available on this contract other than that it is for applied research-slash-exploratory development in the physical, engineering, and life sciences, except biotechnology. Department of Homeland Security Contracts Echo Health Alliance has a $566,300 contract, 2019-2021, with the Department of Homeland Security for the rapid evaluation of pathogens to prevent epidemics in livestock, repel, project to apply biological-based, pathogen-agnostic medical countermeasure vaccine and diagnostic platforms to develop foreign animal and emerging zoonotic livestock disease vaccines. Department of Health and Human Services Funding DASIC obtained a $300,000 grant in 2012 from NIH's Fogarty International Center for Research on Comparative Spillover Dynamics of Avian Influenza in Endemic Countries. While most of the research listed in the results section of the grant are flu-related, it also includes the WITHS paper, Isolation and Characterization of a Bat SARS-like Coronavirus that uses the ACE2 receptor. DASIC was given $3.7 million in grants, 2002-2012, from NIH's Fogarty International Center for the Ecology, Emergence and Pandemic Potential of Nipah Virus in Bangladesh. The grants DASIC used to support the work of the WITH were a $3.7 million grant, 2014-2020, Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence, and a $2.6 million grant, 2008-2012, Risk of Viral Emergence from Bats, each from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, funding, in Thailand, Echo Health Alliance has a $647,200 grant for One Health Workforce Next Generation, 2019-2020. Alexis Bodenmayer is Political Director for the Organic Consumers Association, OCA. EnviroShop is maintained by dedicated Netsys Interactive Incorporated owners and employees who generously contribute their time to maintenance and editing, web design, custom programming, and website hosting for EnviroShop. Alright, so we hear a lot more about the funding there of Peter Dashak and PREDICT and the EcoHealth Alliance and all the various zoological, zoonautical, uh, gain-of-function type research he's done on pangolins and bats and all kinds of shit and making those uh, viruses found in those animals more virulent and more able to jump to human beings and more able to infect uh, human beings. And uh, But of course, you know, the modern... Uh, coronavirus and anything going on with the coronavirus should not be looked at as anything related to, you know, Peter Daszak or Anthony Fauci and the NIH and the funding of these things. They're only doing it to know 
how to respond for when finally nature does that thing where it creates a virus that jumps into human beings and creates a mass pandemic something that doesn't seem to occur in nature but that's uh, what we're being told is the reasoning for all the um, the funding of these various activities it's all in the name of science it's all in the name of defense there's nothing else to see here folks and that's where you should leave it well that's why we're doing the questioning that we're doing just to make sure that we're getting all the facts and all the details uh, on that I had a little bit I might read in there from that book but uh, predict predict is the program that you heard about there uh, that uh, Peter Dashak is involved with and uh, predict as it says here on this uh, UC Davis website is a project of USAID's Emerging Pandemic Threats EPT program, which was initiated in 2009 to strengthen global capacity for detection of viruses with pandemic potential that can move between animals and people. PREDICT has made significant contributions to strengthening global surveillance and laboratory diagnostic capabilities for both known and newly discovered viruses within several important virus groups such as phil filiovirus, including Ebola virus, influenza viruses, paramoxivirus, and coronaviruses. PREDICT activities supported emerging pandemic threats preparedness and global health securities agenda primarily in Africa and Asia a decade later more than 30 countries around the world or sorry around the world have stronger systems to safety safely detect identify prevent and respond to viral threats you would hope so with all that funding right that we've been hearing about predict indicates one health surveillance a trans transdisciplinary collaborative approach to understanding infectious disease risk in animal-human interfaces. The PREDICT-trained workforce, including zoonotic disease specialists and laboratory scientists at more than 60 national universities and partner laboratories. Uh, anyway, so you can go on and read about PREDICT there and the Emerging Pan Pandemics Threat Program um, from 2009. Uh, these will be included in the show notes. Uh, there's an interesting PREDICT 2 uh, and how they go about uh, predicting and looking out for these zoological uh, jumps of viruses into humans and how they can predict and control and uh, be able to prevent that. Uh, we'll just read the opening of this USAID from the American people, PREDICT2, uh, from November 2014. Uh, EPTI successes from the first uh, project. Advances in diagnostic, genomics, and info, informatics under EPT uh, I allowed for investigating in capacity to colligate genetic and epidemiological data and resulted in the most comprehensive zoonotic virus surveillance project in the world, unprecedented in scope and productivity for identifying and predicting pathogen emergence. With its focus on detection and discovery of viruses at the wildlife-human interface, PREDICT has made significant contributions to strengthening surveillance and laboratory capacities for monitoring wildlife and people in contact with animals for novel and known viral agents. This may pose a significant public health threat characterizing human and ecological drivers of disease spillover from animals to people 
and strengthening optimizing models for forecasting disease emergence. In EPT2 is focusing on mitigating the impact of novel, quote, high consequence pathogens, unquote, that originate in animals with a goal of enabling early detection of new disease threats. So, I mean, it goes on and goes on. They don't use the word gain of function in here, I'm assuming, and maybe they are not going to re refer to it as that in here, but that's what they're doing is they're predicting by gain of functioning viruses that normally wouldn't jump from animals to humans to see what would happen if it did. And then when there's a leak or <laughs> I, what I'm thinking is a potential uh, leak, a potential release, uh, oh, no, there's nothing to do with any of the research or the gain of function technology that we've been adding to these viruses and has nothing to do with that at all. It's just a natural thing. In fact, we've been working on trying to prevent that. And uh, you'll find on these websites like the NIH.gov that Peter Dashak is involved in many articles, as we've been hearing, and all kinds of research on this kinds of stuff. Uh, here's one prediction and prevention of the next pandemic zoonosis uh, from 2012. And uh, they're talking about HIV and AIDS here. And then it uh, goes into H1N1 influenza. And in, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The point was to just show you that there's many articles. Here's another one, bats and natural reservoirs, are natural reservoirs of SARS-like coronaviruses. Another from the NIH.gov. Here you can see Peter Dejac's name highlighted. So he's authored uh, many articles on studying bats and coronaviruses. Here's a, uh, another article that we'll go into here from Wired Magazine. And this article is from the 16th of February, 2020, and it says, bats, snakes, or pangolins inside the hunt for animal uh, inside the hunt for the animals for the animal behind the coronavirus outbreak three quarters of new or emerging human diseases originate in animals but pinpointing the source of covid-19 could help us combat future outbreaks in 2013 scientists captured a wild horseshoe bat in a remote cave in Yunnan province 17,000 kilometers southwest of Wuhan it was carrying a virus strain almost identical to the form of coronaviruses that has infected over 6, 65,000 people since December of 2019. I just zoomed in and lost my spot. Let me correct that. Uh, the cave, the location of which was kept secret, was found after an intense search across southern China for the origin of the 2003 SARS epidemic. Now, an even more urgent hunt is underway, this time to find the animal source of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The disease has killed almost 1,400 people in mainland China and three beyond its borders. Bats, snakes, and now pangolins have all been suggested as hosts of the virus that later made its way into humans. But still, we, ha we don't know exactly how the virus jumped from animals to humans, but understanding which animal the virus came from could have profound impact on how we manage future outbreaks. The search for the source of SARS was killed more than seven, uh, 770 people two decades ago has given us a head start in the current hunt. Wearing hazmat suits and equipped with mist nets, a team from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, together with the ecologists and president of EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Dayzak, ventured into limestone caves to collect feces of blood samples from thousands of roosting bats before testing them for novel coronaviruses in the lab. 
Quote, at the time, we were looking for SARS-related viruses, and this one was 20% different, unquote, says Dezak. Quote, we thought it was interesting, but not high risk, so we didn't do anything about it and put it in the freezer, unquote. The group has found around 500 bat-borne viruses in China over the last 16 years, but only flagged those that most resembled the SARS to authorities. A lack of funding meant that they couldn't further investigate the virus strain, now known to be 96% genetically similar to the viruses that causes COVID-19. Could further research on the strain have prevented or minimized the impact of the current outbreak? Possibly. It certainly allowed them to quickly trace the new virus, which emerged in the seafood market in Wuhan, back to the bats. Scientists in China sequenced the full genome of SARS-CoV-2 and made it freely available online in January, of 2000, er, January 10th, less than two weeks after public health officials reported it to the World Health Organization. This immediately started race uh, this immediately started a race among biotechnology companies to research and create diagnostic tests, antiviral drugs, and vaccines. Three out of the, three out of the four new emerging diseases in humans transmitted by wildlife or livestock, according to the estimates published by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. So it's not surprising that people were quick to point out accusing fingers and animals when COVID-19 emerged. Although bats have evolved to tolerate viruses and are believed to host most coronaviruses, it's likely that it didn't pass SARS-CoV-2 directly to humans. Bats are not the only, I mean, this is, this article is getting way more into um, just not, not giving any cadence to the fact that the, all the gain of function research that has gone on and you know, uh, the fact that they are manipulating these viruses in the lab and that SARS-CoV-1, I mean, is a man-made virus, right? Um, let's just read the bottom of this. Understanding and publicly communicating how viruses like SARS-CoV-2 spread among humans will have much greater impact. Quote, I would like, I would be surprised if more than a handful of these patients have ever seen a live pangolin, unquote, says Nijim, adding that most people don't visit wildlife markets and would simply dismiss the science that goes along with their lives. Quote, people get the virus from other people, and that will be the overall experience of the population, unquote. For vi virus hunters like Lipkin, however, the current outbreak is stark reminder that bats, pangolins, and other animals could be the source of future infectious disease as cities and towns encroach on their habitat. Quote, whether they come through bushmeat hunters or people encountering animals in markets, the principle is the same. Wildlife should stay. I mean, so no time throughout history, none of these things ever happened, and all of a sudden these, these, these viruses are suddenly jumping from people to humans because, you know, all the hunting that went on all that time uh, throughout human history, humans never came in contact with these, but now they suddenly are because we're encroaching on the planet into places we've never been. I mean, come on, if anything, people are less, you know, um, exposed to the wild and wilderness, uh, perhaps. Now, this article, just moving right along, talks about more, and we've talked about this before on the BioSci War, Peter Deshack's EcoHealth Alliance has hidden almost 40 million in Pentagon funding and militarized pandemic science by Sam Husseini. Pandemics are 
like terrorist attacks. This is a quote. We know roughly where they originate and where responsible f and what's responsible for them, but what we don't know exactly when the next one will happen. They need to be handled the same way by identifying all possible sources and dismantling those before the next pandemic strikes. Unquote. This statement was written in the New York Times earlier this year by Peter Dejac. Dejac is a longtime president of the Eco Health Alliance, a New York-based nonprofit whose claims focus in pandemic prevention. But the Eco Health Alliance, it turns out, is at the very center of the COVID-19 pandemic in many ways. To depict the pandemic in such militarized terms is for Deshak a commonplace on October 7th online talk organized by Columbia University's School of Public Affairs. Deshak presented the slide titled Donald Rumsfeld Precedent Speech. Quote, there are known knowns. There are things that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know we don't know. But there's also unknown unknowns. There are things that we don't know, we don't know. This is Rumsfeld's quote, is in fact from a news conference. In the subsequent online discussion, Dejac emphasized the parallels between his own crusades and Rumsfeld, since, according to Dejac, the, quote, potential for unknown attacks is the same for viruses. Dejac then proceeded with a not terribly subtle pitch for over a billion dollars. This money would support a fledgling virus hunting surveillance project of his, the Global Virome Project, a, quote, doable project, unquote, he assured watchers, given the cost of the pandemic to governments and various industries. Also on the video was Columbia University's professor Jeffrey Sachs. Sachs is a former specialized advisor to the UN. The UN's head of Millennial Villages Project was a recent appointed chair to the newly formatted EAT Lancet Commission on the pandemic. In September, Sachs Commission named Dezek to head up his committee on the pandemic's origins. Dezek is also the one, sorry, starting again. Dezek is also on the WHO's committee to investigate the pandemic origin. He is the only individual on both committees. The leadership positions are not only are not the only reason why Peter Dejac is such a central figure in the COVID-19 pandemic, however. His appointment dismayed many of those who are awake to Dejac's EcoHealth Alliance fun, funded bat coronavirus research, including virus collection at the Wuhan Institute for Virology, and thus could themselves be directly implicated in the outbreak. For his part, Dejac was repeatedly dismissed. The notion that the pandemic could have a lab origin in fact, the recent Freedom of Information Act by the transparency group U.S. Rights to Know revealed that Peter Dashak drafted an influential multi-author letter published on February 18th in The Lancet that that letter dismissed the lab origin hypothesis as a conspiracy theory, quote, that was a quote. Dashak was revealed to have orchestrated the letter such as to, quote, avoid the appearance of a political statement, unquote. I'm just going to write a quick message here. Child got hurt. I can hear one of my children. I want to make sure everything's okay. Okay, so let's just read a little bit more of this article here. Now, this is following 
the EcoHealth Alliance's money trail to the Pentagon. This article, Peter Dejak's EcoHealth Alliance, has hidden almost $40 million in Pentagon funding and militarized pandemic science. Collecting dangerous viruses is typically justified as a preventative and defensive activity, getting ahead of what, na quote, nature or, quote, the terrorist might throw at us. But by its nature, this work is, quote, dual use, unquote. Quote, biodefense, unquote, is often just as easily biowarfare since biodefense and the products of biowarfare are identical. It's simply a matter of what the stated goals are. So again, you know, the dual use nature of the research and its justification that what about nature or the terrorists that might throw at us. So we've got to justify researching these chimera viruses, which could end up, you know, harming billions of people. For much this year, Dejac's EcoHealth Alliance garnered a great deal of sympathetic media coverage after its $3.7 million five-year NIH grant was prematurely cut when the Trump administration learned that the EcoHealth Alliance funded back coronavirus research at the WIV. The temporary cut was widely depicted in major media as Trump undermining the EcoHealth Alliance's noble fight against pandemics. The termination was reversed by NIH in late August and even upped to $7.5 million, but entirely overlooked amid the claims and counterclaims was the far more funding for the EcoHealth Alliance comes from the Pentagon than the NIH. To be strictly fair to the media, Dayzak's Health EcoHealth Alliance obscures its Pentagon funding. On its website, EcoHealth Alliance states that a copy of the EHA grant manageable manual is available upon request to the EHA chief financial officer at financeecohealthalliance.org. But an email to that address and numerous others, including Peter Dejak's requesting the manual as well as other financial information, was not returned. Neither were repeated voicemails. Only buried under their, quote, privacy poly un policy, unquote, under the section titled EcoHealth Alliance Policy Regarding Conflict of Interest in Research, unquote, does the EcoHealth Alliance concede it is the, quote, recipient of various grants awarded from federal agencies, including the National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, and the U.S. Agency for International Development and Department of Defense. Even this listing... Sorry, starting again. Even this listing is deceptive. It's obscure. And its two largest funders are the Pentagon and the State Department, USAID. Whereas the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, which accounts for a minuscule 74,000, comes before either. That's 74,487. Okay. So this article is going to go on and show a, a chart here. I'll get out of the way to show a full screen of this. And you can see some of the funding. You have a, a 38 million coming from Department of Defense um, from HHS, 13 uh, million, uh, NSF, 2 million, and USAID, another 2.5 million. So again, um, 61 and a half billion 
uh, sorry, $61.5 million, um, $40 million in Pentagon funding and militarized pandemic science is the name of the article. Another two, $20 million came from Health and Human Services, $13 million, which includes National Institute of Health and Centers for Disease Control. Okay, so we're just going to go more military connections. All right, I, w I do want to read that. So skipping down to the section, more military connections. I'll just stay out of the way for now. Uh, the military links the the military links of the Eco Health Alliance are not limited to money and mindset. One noteworthy policy advisor to the Eco Health Alliance is David Friends. Friends is the former commander of Fort Detrick, which is the principal U.S. government bio warfare bio defense facility. David Friends was part of the UNSCOM, uh, which inspected Iraq for alleged biological weapons that were constantly referred to as WMDs or weapons of mass destruction by the US government and the media. Friends has been one of the, those eager to state at least when discussing alleged Iraq programs that quote, in biology, everything is dual use, the people, the facilities and the equipment, unquote. NPR, May 14th, 2003, links no longer available. Just this year, Friends wrote a piece with former New York Times journalist Judith Miller, whose stories of Iraq's WMDs did not so much did uh, did much to misinform the U.S. public regarding the case for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Their joint article, quote, "A Biosecurity Failure: America's Key Lab for Fighting Infectious Diseases Has Become a Pentagon Backwater," unquote, urges more funding for Fort Detrick. Miller and Friends are longtime associates. Miller co-wrote the book Germs, released in 2001, False Flag Anthrax Attacks, which repeatedly quotes Friends Miller. At a time, received a hoax. Uh, sorry, Miller at a time received a hoax letter with a harmless white powder increasing her prominence. Uh, Friends continued hyping the existence of Iraqis WMDs even when the invasion of Iraq. She was. While she was still with the Times, Miller quoted him in a story, quote, U.S. analysts link Iraq labs to germ arms, unquote, on May 21, 2003, pushing the theory that Iraq had mobile biological weapons of mass destruction units. This theory was debunked by the British scientist Dr. David Kelly, who would die apparently by suicide soon after. Soon thereafter. Four significant insights emerge from all this. First, although it's called Eco Health Alliance, Peter Dashak, his nonprofit, Peter Dashak and his nonprofit work closely with the military. Second, Eco Health Alliance attempts to conceal these military connections. Third, through militaristic lang language and analogies, Dashak and his colleagues promote what is often referred to and even then somewhat euphemistically, an ongoing agenda as, quote, securitization, unquote. In this case, it is the securitization of infectious disease of global public health. That is, they argue that pandemics can constitute a vast existential threat. They minimize the very real risk associated with their work and sell it as a billion-dollar solution. The fourth insight is that Dejac himself as the godfather of the Global Virome Project, stands to benefit from the likely outlay of public funds. And you can go and read the acknowledgments there in that article uh, from the independentsciencenews.org. 
uh, called Peter Dayshack's Eco Health Alliance hidden almost 40 million in Pentagon funding and militarized pandemic science. You can also go over to the NIH in the show notes and see all the authored articles by Peter Dayshack and uh, if that's something that you'd like to go look into, I would suggest uh, at least pulling that up and checking that out. Uh, and then again, we have scientists to examine possibilities of COVID leaked from lab as part of investigations into the ongoing origins. This is an uh, article from The Telegraph, and I'm just kind of burning through these uh, leading up to our quote-unquote intermission. <laughs> so uh, this is Tyler from TylerBlawyer.com. Today we are in the bio war. We are uh, in the self-fulfilling catastrophe of Peter Dayshack and the World Eco Health Alliance today. And we're just reading about uh, all the different funding from the military and uh, from the various institutions that fund the gain-of-function research that Peter Dayshack does. And, of course, according to him, there's no possible way that uh, what's happened currently is a, a lab leak or anything anything that comes to do from funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but rather that it might be coming from meats, as, as Dejak says, and the frozen meats is the best theory that we can come up with uh, because the coronavirus somehow jumped into the animals that got frozen, I guess. Uh, from the scientist, it says the article, scientists to examine possibilities of COVID leaked from a lab as part of an investigation into viruses' origins by Annie Guland, Ben Farmer, Sarah Newey, Marina Hunt and Joe Wallen, Paul Newixi, Max Steffens, Will Brown, and The Telegraph. Uh, and this was, if I can refresh and get a date, from September 15th of 2020. An international team of scientists will examine the possibility of SARS-CoV-2 leaked from a laboratory as part of a comprehensive investigation into the origins of the virus. The team is being set up as part of the Lancet COVID-19 Commission, a body established in July to, quote, offer practical solutions, unquote, to the pandemic and make recommendations to how the next one can be avoided or better defended against. The team looking at the origins will be led by Dr. Peter Dayshack, a British zoologist and leading authority on zoonotic spillover events. Dr. Dayshack said yesterday he and his team would, quote, systematically examine every theory. Unquote, about the origins of the virus, carefully marsh marshalling the scientific evidence for each. I would I would like to see that. I would like to see the carefully systematized uh, look at how this could have been uh, p potentially created in a lab and leaked out there if they don't look at it that way. He accepted conspiracy theories, would not welcome his appointment, but said uh, he, he he accepted conspiracy theorists would not welcome his appointment. He said. Uh, but said, as a scientist, he would, quote, not be bound by preconceived ideas, unquote, and would investigate all avenues forensically with, quote, an open mind. He warned, however, it was not possible to, quote, prove a negative, unquote, and said it was like unlikely it would ever be possible to say with, quote, absolute certainty, unquote, how the virus emerged, quote, but what we can do is look at every possible theory on the origins of COVID-19 and say, what is the evidence for that? And then we can put all of those theories together and say, where is the preponderance of evidence? And uh, I feel like that's kind of what we're doing here in the bio war. And from what we can see, the preponderance of evidence would seem 
that you, Mr. Dejak, and people like Fauci, and the NIH, and the NIAID, and the Pentagon, and DARPA, and all these various institutions have been funding and researching gain-of-function technology and gain-of-functioning viruses in labs, which have had many leaks and shutdowns and problems. And uh, just so happens that there was a lot of funding in, in the millions of dollars uh, to the Wuhan Institute, uh, the Oswald Institute of Virology, uh, shortly before it had a, a, a leak. Uh, or no, wait, no, sorry. The main story is currently that it was a bat, uh, the jump. But let's watch carefully as they move towards, you know, blaming China without revealing the funding that we've been uncovering here today in this episode. And here we have the quote from uh, Deshak. It is for the virus coming from nature and spilling over into people and emerging that way, or is it from some form of human involvement that involves a lab or biotechnology? Let's see where the evidence lies, unquote. Since the coronavirus first emerged in Wuhan, China in late December, a deluge of conspiracy theories have circulated about its origins. The Lancet Commission notes in its mission statement that, quote, the evidence to date supports the view that SARS-CoV-2 is a naturally occurring virus rather than the result of a laboratory creation or release, unquote. And I'll just parenthetically say that that's a little bit like the fox uh, confirming that the hen house is nice and secure, going back to the article. But it adds that the investigation should examine the possibility of laboratory involvement in a scientific and objective way, and that it's unhindered by geopolitical agendas and misinformation, unquote. It is hoped a full, a full investigation will, if nothing else, will rule out, quote, baseless and uninformed allegations and conspiracy theories that are all unbacked by evidence, unquote. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, we're just supposed to buy that up and be like, oh, oh, thank you, Peter, for revealing to us that it's not anything at all to see here. And just go home, folks. Uh, nothing to see at all. You know, don't even worry about any of the other information that's been covered here in the bio sci war. Now, uh, we do want to point you to this press release also. New SARS-like coronavirus discovered in Chinese horse bats uh, from the Eco Health Alliance in New York of October 30th, 2013. Uh, this was being planned to read today, but as you can see, we're already pushing quite far into the episode and uh, we still have quite a bit to cover. So I'm going to leave that one for the show notes. And what we're going to do now is jump into Peter Dashak himself from an interview that happened early in 20 or sorry later in 2019 before the official pandemic started and we're going to get a little background on him and then a little bit more information about his thoughts on the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. This week in virology, the podcast about viruses, the kind that make you sick. From Microbe TV, this is TWIV, This Week in Virology. I'm Vincent Racaniello, and you're listening to the podcast all about viruses. We're back at the Nipah Virus International Conference in Singapore, recognizing discovery of this virus 20 years ago. And my guest is president of EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Dashak. Welcome to TWIV. Pleasure to be here. Dashak, is that good? That's great. Perfect. Where are you from? I'm from the UK, but the name's Ukrainian. Really? Yeah, yeah. So at some point, your family moved my, from... My dad was Ukrainian. Ukraine. I want our listeners, and we have many, between ten and 20,000, 
science aficionados, including scientists. I want to learn about the EcoHealth Alliance. What is it? Well, we're a, we're a non-profit, a typical charity. 501c3, yeah, right? 501c3 <laughs> in the US. But we're very focused on research. So what we're trying to do, really, I guess the difference that we're trying to do is do the science and publish in the best journals you can go for. Mm -hmm. um, a typical academic strategy um, funded by federal government and other sources, but then try and take the science and do something with it on the ground. So that's the charity side. That's the, that's the 501c3 side of it. Got it. So I, I like to try and mix mm. that together. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't <laughs> no, go on you, the ground. I stay in the lab. It's, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm from basic science originally, but I've always had an yeah. applied bent. And I, I just think it's good to actually see some results on the ground. It's very hard to do, of course. Yeah. But I think as this meeting shows, it is increasingly important that you oh, apply yeah. Yeah. because in the end, human health is the important yeah. factor, right? We're in an applied field, so it's yeah. great to be able to see that difference. Yeah. When was it founded, the Alliance? Well, we've been around for a long time, uh -huh. over 45 years. It was originally set up as a conservation group, Wildlife Trust. I see. And it was, um, it was linked to a British organization. No one linked to me. It was just mm -hmm. that's how it started, and I eventually took over. Yeah. Oh, so you... It started long before you joined. So long before okay. I joined, and it was Got it. purely conservation, mm -hmm. and health programs started to come into it. One, one of the reasons was a lot of the field workers were getting sick with pretty unusual mm. diseases. So there was a bit of an interest in this, and the health programs proved kind of so interesting and well-funded and well-supported and well-liked on the ground mm. that yeah. they took over. I think it's you're, you're headquartered in New York, yeah, right? It's funny city, that yeah. here we are in Singapore, we yeah. were talking. We never got together in New York. That's pretty ridiculous. In fact, I'm an adjunct at Columbia, so I don't know why we've never. Nah. All right, so that's Mr. Ch Chummy there. Nice Mr. Chummy Deshack uh, with his nice, uh, beautiful accent there. We're just going to jump a little bit ahead here to 29 minutes and 45 seconds to get a little bit more information here. And you can't vaccinate against them. There are no antivirals. What, what do we what do? we do? Well, so I, I think that coronavirus is a pretty good, I mean, neurovirologist. You know, our our strategy is question. any one of those could become pandemic. There's a lot of stochasticity in what happens then. Yeah. So if we look yeah. at all of them, understand patterns, try and reduce the number of spillover events, we've got, a, you know. But if you're saying these are diverse uh, coronaviruses and you can't vaccinate against them, there are no antivirals, what, what, do, we, what do we do? Well, so I, I think that coronavirus is a pretty good, I mean, neurovirologists, you know all this stuff, but they, you can um, manipulate them in the lab pretty easily. It's yeah. just spike protein drives a lot of what happens with the yeah. coronavirus, uh, zoonotic risk. So you can get the sequence, you can build the protein, and we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC mm -hmm. to do this, um, insert it into the backbone of another virus right. and do do some work in the lab. So you can get more predictive when you find a sequence. You've got okay. this diversity. Now, the, the logical progression for vaccines is if you're going to develop a vaccine for a zoonotic risk, so you can get the sequence, you can build the protein, and we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC mm -hmm. to do this, um, insert it into the backbone of another virus right. and do, do some work in the lab. So you can get more predictive when you find a sequence. You've got this okay. diversity. Now, the, the logical progression for vaccines is if you're going to develop a vaccine for SARS, mm -hmm. people are going to use, um, you know, pandemic SARS as Yeah, thing. sure, sure. But let's try and insert some of these other yeah, sure. related and, and get a better vaccine. And I guess also knowledge of what's there 
if you see something emerging, you give it a head start on making yeah. a vaccine or a therapeutic. That's true. And, and you know, better knowledge of where they are as well. So that yeah. you, can, you can put your money into this clinics that matter. And that's one of the big things that we've been trying to push. There's a lot of um, the word predict or the word, you know, the um, anticipating forecasting pandemics. It, it doesn't mean you can stop them. That's the problem. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so what we're trying to do is say, on a global scale, if we can show where they most likely to come from, the species they most likely to originate mm-hmm. in, the people most likely to get affected, a, a global actor like WHO or a national uh, government can better allocate resources to the highest risk. It's okay. pretty simple. So you're doing a lot of activities. Those are just a few of all the ones you can find. How do you know if you're getting results? I know you publish things, right? Yeah. Are there any other metrics you use? All right, so we'll leave that one there for now. Next, we are going to jump into an, a Peak Prosperity clip uh, from Chris Martinson, Dr. Chris Martinson, and uh, get a little bit of information from him. But that was interesting to see Peter Deshack there basically himself admitting to what we've been reading this whole time that they definitely take and gain a function viruses to see what would happen um and you know there's no vaccines or anything for this so what are we going to do well that's what we got to do we got to study it we got to make it happen by way of uh making the viruses in a lab and then uh, that was before the coronavirus outbreak that uh interview but anyways we're going to jump into chris martinson uh section and him talking about the origins of sars-cov-2 here uh just get another little clip from him now uh well no i guess what is it 19 five days ago uh this is not an editorial that comes out of the washington post i was a little surprised to see it because for a while there the official story across all the media was this is natural sars 2 is a natural origin uh but they write right here they say after so much death and illness a mystery from the first days of the novel coronavirus is yet to be solved we still don't understand its origins or how it became a global killer. The answers lie in China and quite possibly beyond. The world needs a credible, impartial investigation to better prepare for future pandemics. Couldn't agree more. Uh, most likely the virus was a zoonotic spillover. Oops, scratchy record noise. Uh, most likely that's qualifying um, term right there. There's no data one way or the other to support that it was a zoonotic spillover. I've, I've presented a lot of the data so far. Um, there is a bunch of data to suggest it came out of a lab. Um, but you could say there's no there's no smoking gun either way, fine. But from a preponderance of evidence standpoint, uh, the weight clearly does not point to a, a natural event at this point in time. And that could change. I'm just telling you the data I have right now. I'll show you just a tiny piece of that flash to the past, a reminder from early this spring of 2020. They say uh, zoonotic spillover, a leap from animals to humans, which have become more common as people push into new areas where they have closer contact with wildlife the facts are still extremely sparse. And then they go on to note that puzzlingly, we still don't know who patient zero was. And that's almost always the thing that you, you need to know more than anything is who is patient zero, the one that, that cha- you can chase back. And if you can figure that out, you can find out where this came from. And then they spend all this time in the wet market in Wuhan. Please, three of the first four known Chinese cases had no contact with the wet market and they were the first cases. So the wet market got crossed out six months ago. Don't even talk about it anymore. It wasn't the source. Source was somewhere else. 
Plus, we have that mysterious case of, say, the Algerian fishmonger in France who had the case back in November of last year, 2019, right? So a lot of things to su- suggest that this story is anything but um, understood. Now, here's the fun part. When I first started talking about the data behind the idea that this could have come from a lab, I got a lot of pushback from virologists, uh, and many of them really took to me on Twitter, and uh, it was very it was a co- coordinated, coercive environment and they were being illogical and irrational and very much not open to debate. And I thought, um, I, I got, it felt like I was up against a club of mean girls at school. You know, they were just going to bully me into, into some sort of intellectual submission. They, they didn't get very far. But now, now, thanks to the U.S. Right to Know, uh, this organization, through a Freedom of Information Act, um, they obtained emails uh, that show a statement in The Lancet authored by 27 prominent public health scientists condemning conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. I was one of them. (laughs) One of those people. Was organized by employees of EcoHealth Alliance. Oh, no, that's the nonprofit group that's received millions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer funding to genetically manipulate coronaviruses with scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Whoops. Um, that was organized, that letter in the Lancet was organized by employees of EcoHealth Alliance. Of course, that's Peter Daszak's uh, thing. Uh, let's keep reading. I think they explain it better than I would right there. The emails obtained uh, via public records requests show that EcoHealth Alliance President Peter Daszak drafted the Lancet statement, and Peter is number one on my list of people who I'd most be interested to see talked to by investigators around this whole thing, and that he intended it to not be identifiable as coming from any one organization or person, meaning, hey, it's going to look pretty bad if it it looks like I drafted it and my organization, which is like uh, the most culpable, the the first organization you'd want to ask some hard questions about. Yeah, yeah, of course he didn't want it to, to be identifiable as coming from him or his organization. Of course. Uh, and uh, um, but rather to be seen as a simply a letter from leading scientists. Uh, you're talking to you right now, leading scientists. Yes, you and you and you, the ones we went back and forth. And I kept going, this is odd. This is odd. Where did this come from? And just you shouted me down at the time saying, you're not qualified. This is why we hate debating people who don't know what they're talking about. You know, so you had the appeal to authority. There were the ad hominem attacks. When all else failed, there was always the... This is why we don't like debating conspiracy theorists. And all the time, I just kept saying things like, where did that polybasic PRA furin cleavage site come from? Simple questions uh, that they had no answer for. The scientist letter appeared in the Lancet on February 18th. February 18th. Consider this. This thing broke across public consciousness late January. My first uh, output on it was January 23rd. By middle of February, they'd already coordinated and wrote and submitted and had approved a letter in the Lancet to quickly say that this wasn't of, of uh, anything but natural origin. Now, now, that's a little early, don't you think? Don't you think, like, how would, how would you possibly be making the case then before any investigation had been conducted, before any teams had gotten into Wuhan properly, that before anybody had studied anything and already a letter from leading scientists. Uh, and by the way, shame on all you leading scientists who penned your name to this. That's not science. It's something else. And that's why I'm offended. I like science. I don't like other stuff that's uh, not science. 
and so that was just one week after the WHO announced the disease caused by the disease caused by would be named COVID nineteen. So just one week after the naming of COVID nineteen, you got Peter Daszak and his or and his organization getting a bunch of people to sign on and and basically say um, condemning conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID nineteen does not have a natural origin. Ooh, that stinks to high heaven. That just stinks. Um, you know what? Actually, I, I have a real-time translation. I, 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 I took this uh, statement and I ran it through Google Translate and I said, give me an image, because uh, Google can do that now. It can translate this to, to German, to Korean, any language you want, but it can also translate to images and it came back with this. <laughs> All right, I kind of joke it. But I, I handpicked this carefully myself. I can't figure Now, for those playing at home, you will recognize that we played that clip uh, probably like a couple a month or two ago on the Grand Theft World podcast back when we were talking about Deshack and the EcoHealth Alliance. And uh, what I hoped to do today was go uh, deeper, not to try to one-up what we did on the Grand Theft World because we do in that show more of a wider scope of what the bigger picture is. We do deep dive into topics. But I've been kind of still mysterious about Peter Dayshack and his connections in with this whole thing since then. And so I decided, you know, today we would go, you know, kind of kick Dayshack and the EcoHealth Alliance square in the nuts and give him a nice uh, little expose here on the bio war. Um, and as you can see there, like they're immediately coming out and pinning articles in February of 2020 saying there's no possible way that it's a lab virus. And uh, there's this evidence of people having it in late 2019, back when Deshack was sitting at that in the interview saying about how we need to, you know, be able to inject uh, SARS and MERS and Ebola and HIV together. And see what happens. And uh, there's no, it's not, you know, not addressing the risk and just calling people who see it as a risk conspiracy theorists. Oh, we will address those conspiracy theorists as Peter Dayshack, the guy getting the militarized military funding, does his own investigation into himself to make sure that everything's okay. I mean, come on, folks, you got to wake up and smell the fresh roses here that there's some fresh fertilizer uh, about. Um, there's some fresh fertilizer all over Deshack's face, um, but nobody seems to notice it. It's like the king's new clothing. We just don't know uh, that he's actually completely naked, uh, holding a bunch of bioweapons and funding from the military to create these things. Um, but no, it was the Wuhan Institute of Virology that has the problem here, not anything about uh, Peter Deshack. Now, I do have to move towards a closing we have to get closer, but I want to talk about some primer for the next episode and what we'll be talking about with the chimera mythology. Now, they spell it differently uh, when talking about chimera viruses, but what is a chimera? Now, some people may not be familiar. So a chimera is also a chimera spelled differently. According to Greek mythology, was a monstrous fire-breathing hybrid creature of Lucia, an Asia Minor, in Asia Minor, composed of the parts of more than one animal. It is usually depicted as a lion with the head of a goat protruding from its back and the tail. So it's like, uh, you know, multiple animals. The term chimera 
has come to describe any mythological fictional creature with parts taken from various animals. So Webster's uh, defines a chimera as a fire-breathing she-monster in Greek mythology, having lions, heads, goats, bodies, and serpents' tail, uh, an imagery monster component of incongruent parts, incongruous parts, an illusion and fabrication of the mind. Uh, now, an infectious bat-derived chimeric influenza virus harboring the injury machinery of an influenza A virus. Uh, this article was written and is posted on nature.com in July 23rd of 2014. And this is sort of setting the tone for the next episode. Um, what we'll be talking about in the next episode of the BioSciWar is not only these chimeric viruses and more about that, but also we'll be talking about uh, gene drive and extinction technology. Now, if you remember back in the article, uh, bats, gene editing, and uh, bioweapons, recent ARPA experiments raising concerns amid coronavirus outbreak, the gene drive technology um, is something that was mentioned in that article. And if we read about that here, we'll read um, concerns about the Pentagon's experiments with biological weapons have garnered renewed media attention, particularly after it was revealed in 2017 that DARPA was the top funder of the controversial gene drive technology, which has the power to permanently alter the genetics of the entire population while targeting others for extinction. At least two of DARPA's studies using this controversial technology were classified and, quote, focused on the potential military application of gene drive technology and the use of gene drives in agriculture, unquote, according to media reports. The revelation came after an organization called the ETC Group obtained over a thousand emails on the military's interest in the technology as part of the FOIA Act, the Freedom of Information Act, um, Co-director of the ETC group, Jim Thomas, said that the technology may be used as a biological weapon. Gene drives are powerful and dangerous new technology and potential biological weapons could have disastrous impacts on peace, food security, and the environment, especially if misused. The fact that the gene drive development is now being primarily funded and structured by the U.S. military raises alarming questions about this entire field. And this article, again, being like one of, the, one of the better articles that we can refer back to in the BioSci War um, by Whitney Webb, which we've referred to many times in the show so far. But that's just a little bit of a preclusion, chimeras, gene drives. So that's setting the tone for audience research. And that way the audience can join the TylerBlair.com Discord server and join in on the research discussion with the BioSci War. And uh, it's a little bit one way at this point. I mean... Mainly, I've been on there posting articles that I'm finding interesting regarding the BioSci War. So I'd like to see, you know, people be able to take the topics that we're covering and also, you know, calling out fact checks and let's let's have a little bit of back and forth. Let's uh, If there's other theories or things that I'm not aware of, you can just join the TylerBlair.com Discord server. That way you're in there and can uh, talk about the BioSci War. And then as other topics come up that we talk about, you could also bring that up as well.
And uh, so moving on for today, as we moved to close, uh, which we still have a little bit longer to go, um, we did cover a little bit of the Chimera stuff that we'll be talking about earlier in the episode. We talked about this. So there's one more article. Let's see. This article is how scientists could stop the pandemic before it starts. Where are we here? And this is uh, from the New York Times. And so it's behind a paywall. And I had a few parts in this I want to read. This is a longer article. Man, we could probably just do a whole episode on on talking about this one article, even though it says it's only a 20-minute read. Um, You could view the original in the show notes. I'm going to hit a few parts on this. This is how scientists could stop the next pandemic before it starts. And it's from 2020, April 21st of 2020. And I'm, I'm sure we'll come across the name Dejak somewhere in this article. On the cold morning of February 2018, a group of 30 microbiologists, zoologists, and public and health experts from around the world met at the headquarters of the World Health Organization in Geneva. The group was established by the WHO in 2015 to create a priority list of dangerous viruses, specifically those for which no vaccine or drugs were already in development. The consensus, at least among those in the room, was that as populations in global travel continued to grow and development increasingly pushed into wild areas, it was almost inevitable (coughs) that once contained local outbreaks like SARS and Ebola could become global disasters. The meeting was in a big room with all the tables arranged around the edges facing each other. One of the group's members, Peter Dejak, Recalled recently, quote, it was very formal process. Each person was asked to present the case for including a particular disease on the top of the threat, on top of, uh, on the list of top threats. And everything you say is being taken down and checked factually and recorded, unquote. Deshak, who directs the Pandemic Prevention Group EcoHealth Alliance and is also chairman of the Forum on Microbial Threats at the National Academic academies of sciences engineering and medicine has been given the task of presenting on sars a lethal coronavirus that killed roughly 800 people after it emerged in 2002 sars stands for severe acute respiratory syndrome and is officially known as sars-cov-1 we've done a lot of research this is deshak quoted we've done a lot of research on coronaviruses so we knew they were a clear and present danger, unquote, he told me. Quote, high mortality, no drugs or vaccines in the pipeline, with new variants that could still be emerging, unquote. The discussion, he said, was intense. Quote, everyone else on the room knows the facts already. They've already read all the research, unquote, Deshak said. Before each pathogen, the speaker had to convince the room that it presented a significant threat. Quote, that this disease really could take off and that we should concentrate on it rather than the Lazi fever or something else. So you agree. So you argue the other the case, and then people vote, and sometimes it gets quite heated. I remember that monkeypox was an issue because there was there are outbreaks, but there's really nothing we can do about them. It was really rigorous, really excellent debate, 
and then afterward, we went and had fondue, unquote. The final list, which did contain SARS and MERS, along with seven other respiratory, hemorrhagic, or hemorrhagic or otherwise lethal viruses, also including, included something the WHO dubbed Disease X, a stand-in for all the unknown pathogens or devastating variations on existing pathogens that had yet to be emerge. That had yet to emerge. Dayzak described COVID-19, the disease caused by virus SARS-CoV-2, as exactly the kind of threat that Disease X was meant to represent. A novel, highly infectious coronavirus with a high mortality rate and no existing treatment or prevention. Quote, the problem isn't that the prevention was impossible, Dejak told me, unquote. Quote, it was, very it was very possible, but we didn't do it. Governments thought it was too expensive. Pharmaceutical companies operate for profit, unquote. And the WHO, for the most part, had neither the funding nor the power to enforce a large-scale global collaboration necessary to combat it. As COVID-19 has spread around the world, overwhelming hospitals with even, and even mortuaries, there has been widespread concentration over how we could have been caught so flat-footed by a virus. Given all the shining advances in high-tech medicine, computer-controlled surgeries, unprecedented immunotherapies, artificial intelligence programs for assessing heart disease risk, this failure feels utterly baffling. How could the entire world remain so powerless. More important, what could be done different next time? According to some infectious disease experts, the scientific tools already exist to create a kind of viral defense department, one that would allow us to pursue a broad range of vital global projects, from developing vaccines and drugs that work against a wide range of pathogens to monitoring disease hotspots and identifying potential high-risk viruses, both known and unknown. What's lacking is resources, quote, we really did miss the wake-up call, unquote, Deshaq says. Quote, the alarm went off with SARS, and we hit the snooze button, and then we hit it again with Ebola, with MERS, with Zika, and now we're awake, and we should think about where to go from here. Now, how do you say that when he's been getting uh, millions, $40 million in funding from the Pentagon and $20 million in funding from other agencies that we missed it, that we haven't got enough, like you know that that 40 to 60 million dollars wasn't enough to catch it or like what he's saying is that we need more funding for the projects that he's been working on uh in late march uh vincent racanillo host of the podcast this week in virology a professor at Com columbia U university conducted an interview with the pediatric infectious disease expert mark denson denson who teaches okay I'm going to skip down now because this article is plenty long and it's not that it's not interesting. There's some pretty interesting pictures in there even. Uh, but you will have to go check it out yourself. I'm going to jump down here um, to more towards the bottom of the article, which is how scientists could stop the next pandemic before it starts from the New York Times in a uh, April of 2020. Hoping to get more accurate estimates of which viruses could be a threat, Deshak recently traveled to a rural part of the Yunnan province in China and took blood samples from people who lived there, looking for antibodies that would show how often they had been exposed to bat coronaviruses. Detectably, uh, this is parenthetically, detectable antibodies typically last two to three years after an infection. Un uh, parenthetic end. Quote, this was a bat coronavirus alone, not all 
the other stuff that's out there, Deshaq said, quote, and we found that 3% of the population had been exposed, which tells me that these are spilling over at an incredible rate as part of an everyday business in rural China, unquote. Which means, Deshaq says, that between 1 million and 7 million people a year in Southeast Asia pick up the coronaviruses, quote, for the most part, for most of them, it probably doesn't cause illness. There may have been some little outbreaks that never got noticed, or cases where people even died, and it gets put down as to influenza or something, quote, he paused, quote, but that is a huge level of spillover. It's not difficult to imagine one of those infections mutating a bit and becoming COVID-19, unquote. Um skipping down a little bit in that article. During the Obama administration, the USAID program called PREDICT was created to fill a gap by using biological surveillance that predicted modeling to identify the most likely sources of zoonotic disease. And that's uh, Dejak's organization, right, who earlier in the article was saying that, that we had no way to know, but he, he, or like how do, we didn't fund it. We were falling asleep, even though he knows like his organization was the one that was funded to predict these gaps, right? Uh, but we were caught flat-footed, is what he was saying. Now, going on, during the 10 years the program existed, researchers found more than a 1,000 new potential zoonotic viruses, including an unknown Ebola strain. Deshak, whose group received financial support from PREDICT, called the project, quote, visionary, unquote. After the program's funding ended in September, shortly before the coronavirus outbreak began, the Trump administra administration authorized two successive six-month extensions. A USAID spokesperson said that in September there will be, quote, a planned transition, unquote, to a new preventative prevention program, Stop Spillover, with a proposed budget between $50 million and $100 million over five years. Quote, for these sort of programs to work, you have to be patient, unquote. Rashiano told me, quote, but these projects also cost money, and they don't necessarily seem like they're producing much in the short term. So they're the easiest things to cut when you want to cut a budget, unquote. One challenge for pandemic hunters is understanding which animals are most likely to be the sources of viruses. Bats, the original carriers for many zoonotic viruses, rarely pass those diseases to humans directly. One study found that bats in China harbor more than 500 different coronaviruses, but they also carry paramoxivirus, influenza, and hemorrhagic viruses like Ebola. More often, Dezak explained, bats infect other animals, which then infect us. Quote, about fifth of all the mammals are bats, unquote, Dejak points out, quote, and they're all over the globe. We just don't realize that because they fly at night. But they're out there, pooping all over the place, just like deer and birds, except we don't see it. It's worth noting that, this is parenthetically, it's worth noting that of the thousands of bat species, only a few, such as fruit bats and horseshoe bats, are currently thought to be the major reservoirs of zoonotic disease. Next paragraph. Bats also fly, can live for a long time, and thrive across a huge range of habitats, which mean that we and other animals are more likely to come in contact with them than other species. Rationello pointed out that an outbreak in Australia in the 1990s was caused when bats began frequenting a racehorse stable, infecting the horses, which then passed the disease to their human trainers. In Malaysia, 
Napif viruses emerged from pigs on farms in an area that harbored. I mean, this is all like obfuscation and not talking about the direct research they were doing with the exact viruses that leaked out <laughs> at the time that they were manipulating them and the place that they were manipulating them with the funding that they were given to manipulate them. But they're like, oh, well, there's these times in uh, Australia that one time or this, uh, there was that one thing in Africa that happened that time, you know, where the thing happened. And those are like isolated events not these like worldwide pandemics that all of a sudden just take over the whole world and like like it was sprayed like it was aerosolized all over the planet that was parenthetically from tyler there not the whole article now moving to exit today as we've really kind of beat up day and his eco ego health alliance is uh, eco health alliance you know of course they love it because they're going to get millions uh, there you saw like over 100 million in funding over the next five years to continue their research right even though they had millions and millions and millions to try to predict and prevent this already but they just don't know and they just can't quite figure it out yet but now that we've had this problem the world health organization can justify the cost of funding peter dashak and his buddies to go out there and save us from the future pandemics um, and what I put forward is most likely manipulating viruses to cause pandemics in human beings. And this is really this total circus clown show for the masses, the mass um, of, you know, really just kind of morons out there that don't read anything and just listen to what the mainstream media tells them. Know nothing about, you know, the things that we've been talking about here in the bio war. Which is why we've taken the time and feel like it's worth going into the effort of covering these topics. So I appreciate those that have stuck with us here in the BioSci War and shared this out. I know these aren't exactly like the most shareable media things. Um, and I'm not exactly looking to reach everybody with this. This is more of kind of a research interest oriented uh, ongoing series that we're doing. We're not necessarily looking to reach the masses with the BioSci War or change the masses mind my opinion is that there are plenty of facts it's not about facts uh, people are scared of freedom they are scared of the truth they are scared of um, actually facing reality so there are plenty of facts about things out there what's happening with most people is that they're afraid to disrupt their worldview uh, they don't they don't want to take in new information not because they're stupid or not because they're ignorant but because their worldview is established in a certain paradigm where they don't want to disrupt or have to change around the make sh the furniture with the worldview. It's already set up the way they want it. It's in place the way they've set it up, the way they want it to be. And someone comes along trying to move around the things that they've set up the way that they've organized it. And that becomes a threat. It becomes something that they don't want to know. Not even just someone, but information comes along. Facts come along. Things come along in reality that should be looked at, like the information we've covered here. These things need to be investigated before you just jump right into these mRNA vaccines or these, uh, these gene therapeutic uh, med medical um, components, basically software, as we look into the mRNA Moderna vaccines funded by DARPA, funded by BARDA, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, before there was ever a pandemic going on. Uh, they're looking to capitalize on the success of what they see as a successful round one pandemic. And as we head into the winter of 2021, we have to wonder what is planned, what will happen with all the immunosuppressed people with the vaccines that 
uh, are outright telling you that they will immunosuppress you. And then they'll be having these weird chimeric viruses, maybe potentially even uh, floating around in their system from before or uh, from the next uh, phase of the pandemic or the next round of this bioweapons labs research thing. So the whole terrain theory versus, uh, you know, uh, germ theory and uh, vaccine debate and things like what about a bioweapon that's been chimerically uh, gain of function in a lab? Does the science account for any of that, any of these arguments against, you know, um, germ therapy? And again, going back to the danger of the conspiracy theorist who says, it's all bullshit, man. You guys don't listen to the government, bro. It's all just bullshit, man. They just want to keep you inside. And, they, they, you know, there's nothing going on. It's all bullshit, man. Like, they're just calling the flu the coronavirus, bro. I mean, what happened to the flu, bro? Did you ever notice the flu just disappeared, man? And, of course, we know that they started calling um, all things that people ended up in the hospital for coronavirus to change the numbers to make to be able to come up with a certain uh, way, a certain schematic, a certain way that it looked in the info war, in the psychological bio psi war. But it doesn't mean that there isn't actual sickness occurring that's been released potentially or accidentally um, with these bat like pangolin, SARS, avian viruses that they've been mixing together and if you look into the history of HIV or other things like that you can easily see that the government and the military are often behind creating pandemics creating viruses accidentally these things get leaked out of labs and then oh whoops I mean we went through and covered two episodes into uh, Willie Bergdofer and his research uh, the biochemist from Switzerland and working with um, Kurt Blom and the Nazis in Fort Detrick, Maryland, and also Plum Island, and injecting ticks with biological weapons agents, and also then, you know, from Unit Lab 731, uh, Unit 731 in Japan, and the U.S. Um, taking that information that they then concealed from happening officially and didn't hold the Japanese government or military accountable in a similar way to the Nazi uh, government in the Nur Nuremberg trials that supposedly were supposed to route out the evil Nazi scientists and soldiers that carried out the orders, which really like covered up Operation Paperclip, as we've been reading about here in the BioSci War. But uh, yeah, so again, people need to wake up and stop being so naive about the current conditions of how things are on both sides on the people that are saying it's just all complete it's, it's bullshit man and this i just want to go back out and be around like we should just be able to be and i for one i'm all about freedom of movement i think that we shouldn't have our freedoms restricted because of uh environmental things going on unless it's uh something that's more thought out and provable than you know the dangers of the current pandemic but there's clearly more going on just this one thing they're not they're training us to behave when they say there's something going on that way they can just make us do what they want us to do if there's a virus or there can be real viruses going on and they can cause our behavior to change in that way too so the behaviorism techniques they're deploying are not that's why it's a bio psi war it's bio it's real it's really biological 
there really are things that are making people sick that in my in the case that we're making here we've been potentially intentionally released in this same logic that we've been hearing the whole time well if we don't do it they'll do it and that's that's why they would release it too on purpose because if, if they don't do it it'll happen and then they won't have the control over the outcome right and how to manage that so even in the logic that they've been portraying to us about why they would fund these chimeric or the gain of function research why they would fund biological weapons research why they would want to take nazis from nazi uh germany into america as, as scientists and continue their research it's all in the name of national security all in the name of defense all in the name of safety right so that logic would also lead them to then realize that there's enough potential out there for other countries other uh, malevolent actors out there to release these viruses so instead of waiting for that to happen and then not having the response and the control and being able to get people starting to get used to being locked down and masked up and wearing rubber suits, as I'll, I'll say, as it'll be coming next. Um, I'm not I'm not pro masks by saying any of this. I'm not pro restricting anyone's freedom. I think that there should be no masters and no slaves. I think that there should be um, natural rights respected people living under the laws of nature and respecting common law and being able to travel freely while taking the risk in that nature uh, provides to us that everybody has to take by living daily life. There's risk involved. Um, but by taking away our freedoms and forcing medical apparatus and forcing medical um, conditions and treatments onto us, that is not freedom. That is not uh, correct. That is not right. That is not their right to do to sovereign people who own their own bodies. So on those lines, we're going to cut to two clips now and then exit the show. I may or may not be coming back to give us an outro. Uh, I will be cutting to first a Whitney Webb article. Sorry, this is a Whitney Webb uh, interview where she breaks down a bunch of stuff. I like listening to Whitney. I think it's just a good <laughs> clip to stick here at the end. Some good parhesia. And then uh, a TEDx talk. And that TEDx talk from Adam Scheifenreck on viruses as powerful tools to cure cancer and genetic diseases. So this is going to be a little bit. And then I'll probably just exit the show. Next show is going to be on gene drive, CRISPR, and uh, chimera viruses and things like that so still more fun to have in the bio war and uh we'll probably just see you guys on the flip side let's jump into this interview with whitney webb we started off talking about the parallels between coronavirus and some earlier pandemic simulations that were run by the government whitney also drew some parallels to the anthrax attacks that happened following 9 11 and the connections between those anthrax attacks and some of these simulations. Again, it's all very interesting and it's all very interconnected. So without any further ado, here's my interview with Whitney Webb. Um, into the anthrax attacks in 2001. Um, our, our, <laughs> that investigation is actually super controversial if you actually look at the evidence, so much so that the lead investigator on that case, a guy named Richard Lambert, um, ended up leaving the FBI and then filing a whistleblower lawsuit because he said that he was obstructed um, and unable to investigate and that higher ups in, in the bureau and in the Bush White House were trying to prevent um, 
the FBI from actually finding who was responsible. And in the early days of the investigation, several other things happened that, that point to a very deliberate cover-up because it was determined very early on that the anthrax used in the attacks had originated from a U.S. bioweapons lab, uh, either Fort Detrick or um, some other facility. Um, some people appointed to uh, Utah, D uh, Dugway over there, potentially being a site for that. Um, and uh, one of the things Lambert uh, revealed is that uh, the guy they eventually pinned the, the attacks on, again, a guy named Bruce Ivins, um, when they were building their case against him, they intentionally withheld what this guy said was a mountain of evidence that would have exonerated this guy because they just wanted to pin it on someone to make it go away. But the fact that it was a domestic source in the media, um, even after it was known to the FBI to be a domestic source, tried to pin this on a foreign uh, entity, specifically the one outlined in Dark Winter. I mean, it's all very odd. And so the fact that all of this went on and that the people that wrote the simulation were making these like very creepy predictions, telling people in the, in the top, you know, top positions of political power to take Cipro to prevent antibiotics, but not postal workers um, or people that would have been like put in the line that attack ended up taking place is very suspect is as is the fact that a lot of those same people ended up being involved in this FBI investigation um, and, and in obstructing that investigation, like I just pointed out. Okay, so um, the, some of those individuals, specifically Thomas Inglesby uh, of the Center for Health Security, uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and uh, Robert Cadlick, who is now um, the Department of Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, were both involved in Dark Winter. Right after 9-11, Cadillac became Homeland Security Advisor to the Bush administration for biowarfare and bioterrorism right before the anthrax attack. And Thomas Inglesby personally briefed Dick Cheney about Dark Winter right after 9-11 when Dick Cheney was already on Cipro, right? And then they were both involved in the FBI investigation, or sorry, only Cadillac was involved in the FBI investigation. But Inglesby, uh, <laughs> like in 2002, um, attempted to say that the 9-11 hijackers had had 9-11 using like this very discredited scientific analysis, um, but that it got media um, coverage trying to claim that it wasn't a domestic source um, and that it was actually obtained by the 9-11 hijackers and brought here, which of course is not what actually happened. But anyway, um, those guys, um, Inglesby was the moderator for Event 201 and the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security that sponsored Dark Winter um, was one of the three main sponsors for Event 201. And uh, Robert Cadlick is the guy that wrote and led Crimson Contagion, which wasn't just one simulation. It was a series last year of four simulations simulating a pandemic flu outbreak originating from China um, that it later spread globally. And it involves 19 different federal agencies, 12 states, and a bunch of uh, private corporations, including the company that's going to build the Jared Kushner-backed um, coronavirus surveillance system. So that's interesting. And... Um, Event 201, of course, um, predicted, well, um, simulated a coronavirus uh, outbreak that went global and killed an estimated 65 million people and talked about things like censoring online criticism, uh, limited internet shutdowns, which are also themes that are brought up at Dark Winter, among other things. So um, definitely- Really, they were talking about that all the way back then. Uh, yeah, at Dark Winter, they were saying that um, um, one of the things that came up in the simulation was uh, concern about online misinformation, and this is in 2001, right? Wow. So obviously the concern about that uh, totally amplified after 2016, so it obviously got a lot more attention in Event 201, but it's definitely something that, that took place in Dark Winter as well. Um, and they, Dark Winter talked about a lot of very disturbing ways the government should consider responding to pandemic situations, including the Declaration of Martial Law, um, invoking the Insurrection Act, 
um, in one of the fictional news clips that were used in this exercise, um, there's people trying to escape the epicenter of the pandemic, which is in Oklahoma in the exercise, and are trying to cross the border into Texas, and they get shot by National Guard live on camera. You can, like, the guy, the, the newscaster is saying, oh, it's a war zone out here. It's all very disturbing stuff. So uh, you covered Dark Winter and Event 201. Uh, what were Urban Outbreak and Crimson Contagion? Okay, so Crimson Contagion was the Department of Health and Human Services. This uh, It was four different simulations of various sizes. The biggest one took place in August, but these four exercises took place over the course of January to August of last year. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, it was 19 federal agencies, 12 states, and then a bunch of private companies, including, I think, Aetna um, and, and a bunch of other like big corporations. And then uh, this... Uh, military um, intelligence contractor that's going to be making this um, surveillance system if Jared Kushner's plan is approved. So uh, we'll see. And so um, the most important part of that simulation, I would argue, would be the last part, which was the biggest part, um, because it was four different days. And I think something that's really interesting and that needs to be looked at more is that the third day of that last Crimson Contagion exercise, it was devoted entirely to finance. And the Secretary of Treasury or sorry, the, the Treasury Department, uh, led by Steve Mnuchin, was very, very involved um, and participated directly in this exercise. And obviously in the finance day would have um, been leading that, but the, um, exactly what they gamed out on that day specifically has not been made public. But I think it's really interesting when you look at how the coronavirus so-called relief effort has played out since then, because it was basically, you know, this multi like thousand plus page bill that was like ready to go. And just like the Patriot Act, you know, um, the Patriot Act was written well before 9-11, but after 9-11, it was like, bam, let's pass this. And they were really promoting it be, it be passed with little to no debate. And so what you see now with this coronavirus relief bill that gave $4 trillion to Wall Street, essentially four times bigger than the 2008 Wall Street bailout, um, gets pushed through much the same way and was basically already there waiting to go. And um, I, I don't really want to speculate too much, but the fact that there was this finance day simulating pandemic response and it was the Treasury Department there and Steve Mnuchin was pushing this bill and he's a former Goldman Sachs guy, you know, I think there might be something there um, in terms of like when they decided what the relief efforts would be and, and when. But obviously they would need to be a little more forthcoming about what exactly they talked about. Um, and, and there's some other red flags there in terms of what was discussed. Uh, like I said, um, about event 201, they were talking about concern about online misinformation. That was also something that came up um, in Crimson Contagion, as was a need for like this contact tracing uh, surveillance type software, which is actually um, was originally pushed uh, by NQTEL, um, which is the CIA's venture capital arm back in 2017. Um, a woman named Tara O'Toole, who was currently NQTEL's executive vice president, was talking about the need to use like geolocation and, and private um, health data and smartphone data of American citizens in order to fight the next global pandemic. Um, this was you know, what, like, you know, th more than three years ago. And what's interesting is that this O'Toole woman, Tara O'Toole, is a longtime uh, co-worker of Thomas Inglesby and she used to lead um, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security before he became director. And along with Thomas Inglesby was the uh, main co-author of Dark Winter and also briefed Dick Cheney 
you know, after 9-11. So it's a lot of the same suspects coming up in terms of determining, um, you know, a lot of the policies that we're seeing being implemented now. And I think um, part of the reason that it's, it, it, it's so um, interconnected is because there hasn't really been much media scrutiny or really scrutiny at all of um, post 9-11 biodefense policy in the U.S., which has essentially been about um, creating a racket <laughs> uh, for big pharmaceutical companies, um, as opposed to investing in things like healthcare surge capacity or protective equipment for workers. Because something that comes up in dark winter and crimson contagion is that there's not enough protective supplies for healthcare workers. There's no surge capacity in healthcare. And right, so they knew this in 2001 and they knew this last year and in every other simulation since, why didn't they do something? Well, that's because biodefense policy, which has been, you know, uh, post 9-11 uh, biodefense policy has been dominated really by uh, the legislation that Robert Cadlick oversaw when he was Bush's uh, Homeland Security Advisor for biodefense. Um, it is basically about stockpiling vaccines uh, for smallpox and anthrax and attacks that have like never really taken, you know, for uh, pathogens and, and bioweapons that have never actually been unleashed in the public. And in the case of anthrax, it was unleashed by someone working for the U.S. military and we still don't really know who did it. Right. So basically what uh, I call this a racket, because not only do they stockpile these vaccines, these vaccines only have a shelf life of like three to four years. So they eventually become useless and constantly have to be replenished. And the government pays premium prices on these vaccines, way more than the cost of production. So essentially you're having, you know, a, a built-in market for a lot of these vaccine companies. Uh, and they know that those vaccines will never end up being used. And some of those vaccines, particularly the anthrax vaccine has a very controversial history that I talk about in a recent article um, about this company called Bioport and Emergent Biosolutions, which has been a huge beneficiary of this policy and one of the dark winter guys that I mentioned a second, a little bit ago, Jerome Hauer, has been on their board of directors for years, right? And now they're about to benefit from getting all these coronavirus, uh, back, they're backing two coronavirus vaccine candidates um, and also two experimental plasma blood treatments that are being uh, directly funded, some of them, by the U.S. government. So it's all, it's basically like a bio biodefense mafia, <laughs> honestly, I would call them sort of of these like... Um, you know, um, career uh, bioterrorist doomsayer guys that have been on since the Bush days. Um, and, you know, a lot of these big pharmaceutical companies have consistently been working together over the years. And this is kind of the end result. Viruses are tiny, natural, infectious agents that, whether you realize it or not, cause, are part of our everyday lives. Viruses often make headlines for causing disease in humans. You all, at some point or another, have heard of Ebola virus, which caused the deadly outbreak in West Africa in 2015. Polio, which causes paralysis and struck fear in the hearts of parents prior to the development of Salk's vaccine in the 1950s, and smallpox, the deadliest pathogen 
in the history of mankind. Uh, except for as we've learned that the Salk vaccine was actually giving people polio virus. I just want to clarify this. Th we're watching this only because it's interesting that he ties it into cancer research. And that's the tie in that we were making before. Just to clarify, um, I don't like think that this is tremendous. This last video I'm showing, this guy is very mainstream. He calls the Salk virus a uh, good thing. We've uncovered Salk as someone who was trying to do uh, a lot of extermination on people and that the polio virus was actually giving or the polio vaccine was actually giving people the polio virus and probably all kinds of cancers and things like that as well. So but again, we'll just go back into this. I'll just give that little bit of context on this clip. But it may surprise you that some viruses are being harnessed to be beneficial for humans and may be key tools in the future of treating cancers and genetic diseases. So what exactly is a virus? All viruses contain two essential components, genetic information and a protein coat. The genetic information is stored in nucleic acid, which is, can be either DNA or RNA. The nucleic acid has four base pairs, which can be arranged in different ways to code for different things. DNA is transcribed into RNA, and messenger RNA is translated into proteins which have a large number of functions in our bodies. The virus makes proteins that form a protein capsid that protect the genetic information. Some viruses have an outer lipid envelope, which they use um, and acquire from the host cell that they infect. Protein spikes are used by the virus to adhere to and enter cells. Viruses come in many different shapes and sizes. Some are small and simple, containing only a few genes, while others are large and complex, containing hundreds of genes. Every organism on the planet can be infected with a virus. Viruses cannot replicate on their own. Instead, they must infect a host cell and use its machinery to make new copies of themselves. Viruses adhere to the host cell and release their genetic information. Sometimes, viruses will lay latent in the cell, not causing harm. This is where one type of gene therapy can occur, in which the virus delivers nucleic acid, telling the cell what to do without harming the cell. Once the virus is inside, it can then hijack the cell into making new viral nucleic acids and proteins. Sometimes, the new viral particles will lyse out of the cell, killing it. This is where another form of gene therapy can occur, in which the virus infects but selectively kills cancer cells. Viruses, the idea of using viruses as beneficial agents for treatments has been around since they were first recognized around the turn of the 19th century. Throughout the past 150 years, there have been numerous case reports of patients having brief regressions of their cancers during naturally acquired virus infections. Oftentimes, these patients had suppressed immune systems, which allowed the virus to not be killed by the immune system before reaching the cancer cells. In one early and widely cited example from 1904, a doctor named George Dock described a 42-year-old woman with a malignant leukemia that went into remission after a presumed viral infection. The 1950s and 60s brought an accelerated understanding of viruses. 
This was due to the advent of cell and tissue culture systems, which allowed for viruses to be grown outside of the body and the development of rodent models of disease. Many scientists and doctors studied viruses as potential agents to treat cancers and genetic diseases during this time. But genetic technology was not quite advanced enough, and viruses proved to be too elusive to be safely used as treatments in humans. This caused many scientists to abandon the field in the 1970s and 1980s due to limited success. It was clear that viruses had great potential for being used as treatments, but it, it needed to have their genomes be able to be stably and accurately manipulated before they, so that they could be better targeted to cancer cells without being destroyed by the immune system or causing harm to non-target cells. The age of genetic engineering changed this. In the early 1990s, genetic technology became standard, and many, uh, and, and many uh, scientists began studying this idea again. Gene therapy, genetic diseases and cancers are can sometimes be caused by a missing gene or mutated gene that causes harm. In gene therapy, a therapeutic gene can replace or correct the missing or mutated gene. Viruses can be used as vectors to deliver this therapeutic gene. Gene therapy can have several different purposes. Um, for one, they can be used to compensate for genetic defects. Cytoreductive therapy, in which cancer cells are, are reduced or stopped from dividing. Tissue engineering, in which tissues are, are engineered to, be, to function in a desired way. Or immunostimulatory, in which cancer cells are engineered to be destroyed by the immune system. In addition to using oncolytic viruses to kill cancers, viruses can also be used as vectors for other genetic diseases. Currently, there is active research looking into muscular dystrophy and cystic fibrosis for compensating for genetic defects. Immune disorders, such as severe combined immunodeficiency disorder, have already had great prior success in clinical trials in being treated by gene therapy. This idea of using viruses as friends culminated in the first commercialized oncolytic virus called Oncorin. Oncorin was a modified adenovirus vector, which was approved by the Chinese SFDA in 2005 to treat a form of carcinoma in combination with chemotherapy. In 2015, the US approved its first oncolytic virus called Imligic, which is a modified form of the herpes simplex virus that was shown to be effective at killing melanoma lesions. Today, there are viruses in clinical trials from over nine different families in the United States, and viruses have moved into clinical trials all over the world. One clinical trial occurred at the U.S. institution that I spent last summer researching at, the Mayo Clinic. Stacy Erholtz battled a deadly multiple myeloma, a cancer of the plasma cells in the bone marrow, which also causes skeletal and soft tissue tumors. This, this type of cancer 
often overcomes the immune-stimulating drugs used to treat it, and it's rarely curable. She had tumors growing all over her body, she was out of treatment options, and she had a very grim outlook. She joined a two-person clinical study at the Mayo Clinic in 2013 and was injected with enough oncolytic vaccine strain measles virus to vaccinate 10 million people. After getting very sick for a day, her cancer completely cleared, and she, it has been manageable ever since. Because of this treatment, this woman is still alive today as of the time of this talk, over three years after the treatment and 12 years after the initial diagnosis. Viruses certainly have exciting potential as beneficial agents to treat cancers and genetic diseases. It took many scientists and doctors performing fundamental research purely out of the sake of curiosity to generate this, the knowledge that we have today to arm, modify, and target viruses. People from diverse backgrounds performing basic research were essential in driving this concept from impossible to realistic. Despite the remarkable progress that we've seen, and despite this concept being proven to be possible, we still have a long ways to go before it can be, have widespread impact on people. It will, it's going to take a lot to do this. We have to continue to, as with the rest of science, in order to drive it forward, we have to keep increasing opportunities for all people to engage in science regardless of the geographic background that they come from or other factors that make them diverse. Many more discoveries are needed to be made and much more work is needed to be done. For example, the oncolytic measles virus that sta treated Stacey Erholtz was not effective at treating cancer patients who didn't have as many antibodies for measles virus and thus modifying the virus to be able to hide from the immune system while still not causing harm to normal body cells will be required. Both a shared respect for science by everyone domestically and the ability to form international collaborations to openly share ideas were important in the history of this idea and will be essential for making future advancements as we continue this story of turning viruses from foes to friend.